With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Tonight's podcast is sponsored by Tor Nightfire Books and their new release, Echo. From international best-selling sensation Thomas Olda Hervelt comes Echo, a thrilling descent into madness and obsession as one man confronts nature and something even more ancient and evil answers back. Travel journalist and mountaineer Nick Grievers awakes from a coma to find that his climbing buddy, Augustine, is missing and presumed dead. Nick's own injuries are extensive as they are horrifying. His face wrapped in bandages and unable to speak. Nick claims amnesia, but he remembers everything. Something is haunting Nick, and something has awakened inside of him. Something that endangers the lives of everyone around him. Echo is available now everywhere books are sold. And for more information, please check out www.tournightfire.com. That is tournightfire.com to learn more about Echo. Hello and welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host Rebecca McKendry and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing? Call me Elric Face. Elric Face, what is up? It's fuzzy. It's a fuzzy face. Elric Face will pay off later when we're talking about chainsaws, so just just stick with it. (laughs) um, Yeah, I don't know. Still here, still doing things. It's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So I had a big announcement today, which was cool. Um, I can finally talk about the film that I made last summer when I had a short sabbatical. I know, right? I didn't Um, know. You even hid it from me? Oh my God. I think you've already seen it (laughs) over a cut of it. it, Yeah. And you read the script. Yes, that's true too. Okay. So I guess I did know. Holy shit. I think you did. um, Yeah. So, um, but I directed a movie called Glorious with Amp. And uh, starring J.K. Simmons and Ryan Quanton. And all I'm allowed to say about it so far is that it's like super Lovecraftian, weird, gory, absurdist humor cosmic. And that is all I can say so far. Well, that's okay. I can tell them the rest. Okay. So what it is. <laughs> From the first cut to the next cut. Yeah. No, but it's a, it's a lot of fun. And it's very, and the good thing I can tell people, it's very you in a lot of ways, which I think is what, what you hope somebody's feature is going to be. Like it's, yeah. I feel like it has a lot of the qualities you love in movies. So I think <laughs> listeners of the show will be rewarded for the sticking with all the bonker picks you've had in your life. <laughs> I can say that. that. Yeah, this is the first off. one that I can look at and say, oh, yeah, that's that's a me film. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, yeah. that's a good thing. But yeah. So what have you been watching this week? I haven't seen as much um, this week because, well, I, I watched a few things that are tied directly into the topic we're going to be going into mm-hmm. later. So I'll hold off for that. But I will say that uh, I saw the new Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, uh, directed by Johannes Roberts. And not many people 
in like okay what happens i think with video game movies at least this is as somebody who doesn't play games i think people get very critical because things are either faithful or not faithful enough but because i don't give a flying shit about any of that because i didn't play any of these games like if i did it's once um i think this is one of the most fun things i've seen this year and it's so my jam because it's like it's just like strangers 2 and who and Johannes did that too, in the sense that it's got these like very carpenter esque sequences Ooh. and then punctuated by, you know, very average to clunky drama. And and that was the downside of Strangers too. And this has a few drama scenes where you're like, oh yeah, that doesn't work. But everything in between it, all the set pieces are freaking rad. It's really fun. It's Johannes, I like it more way more than the other Resident Evil films. He That's always fun. kills like the set pieces. I yeah. still show Strangers too in my oh, class yeah. when yeah, I'm talking thing. about murder set pieces. Yeah. I'm like, we're gonna start with this one. I could show Psycho, but this is better. But this um, is, it's, but just, it's I mean, Psycho's great, but this is tight. And the, the, I think you would enjoy this as a late night. Mm-hmm. It, it gets a little sillier as it goes, but only towards the end because maybe a little bit more CG. But before that, it's it's you know it's this Raccoon City. I don't know enough about the world to give a shit. But um, but basically, it's Raccoon City. It's this big mansion, and it's I guess it's the origin story of of what's happening here. And uh, but but it's cool because this girl's coming back to this town that has now been um evacuated largely it still has a a small police force some people still live there but it's basically the last days of raccoon city as as the chemical pharmaceutical company has relocated but obviously it's it's left its plague in this town and this uh, a girl who was a young girl who grew up there um has returned on as she's like a badass she comes into town with a trucker and basically the plague starts uh, somebody's getting a message saying that the town will be blown up um, by the next morning because shit's about to get bad. And that's where everyone starts getting infected and going crazy. And it just, you get introduced to all these different characters, like a group of cops, um, her, there's a handful of others, but Donald Logue, who is an actor who, even if you don't know his name, you will look him up and go, oh, that guy. He was in a indie film from the mid nineties called the Tao of Steve, the Tao of Steve, which was like just a real lo-fi little indie about a guy trying have, to pick a woman. Yeah. I have a vague memory of that. I don't think I ever saw it, but I and remember a, it coming. Yeah. And a good show called Terriers that got canceled after like mm-hmm. one season on FX, but he, he's just a really funny and he plays the sheriff and he's not a very good sheriff. And he's like, he's just like a bit of a fuck up, but it, he's really funny in it. He's really, I, I just, I found it to be, it did all the things I want from a bigger horror film late at night that I'm basically 99% of the time I'm, I would be disappointed with movies like this where I'm like, okay, it's just another thing. I didn't, I felt this was pretty smart for what it was. I thought the gags are great. I just enjoyed the world, but again, I'm coming in before people get mad at me who I'm coming in, not really caring about the origins of the video game version. And so I just purely watched it um, as a film. And I got to say, it's, uh, one of the more fun, uh, bigger budgeted kind of uh, films I've seen this year. And, you know, I like the first Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. I didn't like care for many of the sequels. I th- it all kind of blends together after that. Whereas the, I like this more than all of those because it just, I felt like I hadn't seen this exactly before and kind of made the zombie kind of creatures. They're not quite zombies at this point. They're still humans mm-hmm. infected. I thought they were, I thought it was really, it looked great too. It just was a, a cool looking slick. So if you're looking for that, like good slick, big budget, uh, I don't know. It's probably not that big budget, but um, I think you would actually enjoy this one. I tend to like Johannes's movies yeah, a lot. Yeah. Like I love, he just brings an energy to his films that yeah. I tend to really enjoy. And so. Carpenter love. I mean, it's written yeah. all, each one of them always has this, Oh, I can, I see his love for him and Hey, I'll take somebody, you know, imitating Carpenter over, uh, you know, somebody worse than that any day. So, Oh yeah. 
Um, well, I'm gonna see that with another zombie-ish. I don't know. I think that they are technically zombies in Resident Evil. Um, and I'm gonna head over to Pure Zombies, which is I binged All of Us Are Dead on Netflix. Wow. Um, which is great. Oh my god, I loved this so much. Like, and I will say I have not finished it. I am um eight, nine episodes in, and I think it goes to twelve. I'm almost there. Um but this is one that I can't wait to get back to. Uh, this it's, it's a really basic setup of, uh, a outbreak happens through kind of a science experiment gone wrong. A, a zombie outbreak happens at a high school, um, a South Korean high school, and it starts spreading really quickly. But before, like the outbreak doesn't even happen until the end of the first episode. And what you realize is that it is so much about teen rage and teen angst and teen anger. And that is what fuels a lot of the zombies. And then it becomes teachers versus students versus other students, all versus zombies. Like the students all hate each other and are all divided into these various social classes before the zombies even come in. And so you, then you're dealing with this like teen angst and teen drama and teen rage. And the zombies honestly become kind of like, a whole nother level of that rage. Cool. And so it's real fascinating. Um, my God, the kills in this are so intense. Like it is brutal. The zombie transformations are the most bone creaking, like folding yourself in half shit I've ever seen. And what I posted about on Twitter, which I was just so impressed with the steady cam work. Oh my God. During the outbreak scene, like it was like basically on steady the entire time. And it was beautiful. Like it was the most beautiful outbreak scene I have ever seen. And it was super long and in depth and going from all these different areas of the school, but it was just gorgeous camera work in this one, um, especially in that outbreak sequence. So yeah, it just turns into a group of teens trapped in a high school during a zombie outbreak, all communications get caught off and they, they're kind of left on their own. Um, and so it does kind of turn into, I've, I've seen a couple of people comparing it to like a fantastic land, even where it's just like this group okay. of kids stuck. And then it becomes them with their kind of Lord of the flies mentality and also zombies. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend this one. It was an absolute trip and I'm anxious to get to the last couple of episodes. That is all of us are dead on Netflix. I, yeah. Looking at the art of it, I wondered if it had anything to do with um, one cut of the dead or just some of the characters like reminded me of that vibe, but it, it definitely, um, it starts comedic. I will say uh -huh. it, like a lot of South Korean horror, I think it starts a little bit more comedic. Um, and then definitely shifts into like this brutal, brutal stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun mix. It's, it's a very fun watch. Okay. Um, but yeah. Um, I saw a new indie, a brand new indie, uh, that, is directed it's called the free fall it's directed oh, by adam stillwell who i've been wanting to see this i've heard about it yeah so dennis widmar i've met adam uh a few times at very over the years at various parties of dennis's and i saw dennis post about this film and i was like okay i didn't know anything about it um and he just posted that it had a crazy twist and so i'm not gonna say that much because when he says crazy i would say maybe the biggest kind of like twist twist like now what you're watching is going to change everything about how you watched it kind of movie i've seen in years and years um it is it opens with this uh young girl who or youngish you know in her 20s or whatever uh she is coming home bringing flowers home to her parents anniversary dinner and she goes into the house and doesn't see them the 
dinner table's nicely set. She goes upstairs and her mom is dressed in her wedding dress and the dad is wearing a suit and he is lying completely bloodied in the bed and the mom is stabbing him repeatedly and looking insane. And then she looks at her daughter and cuts her throat. And that's how it opens. And you're like, what the hell just happened? It's like a dream scene almost, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure if it's a dream scene or not. Right. But that's how the film opens. And then she, next thing you know, she's in a bathtub full of her own blood and she's cut her. It looks like she's cut her wrists and you're like, Oh, so now it's a suicide thing. And then she fades out. And when she wakes up, um, Sean Ashmore is there in a nice turtleneck doing a very Jack, Jack Nicholson in the shining kind of role. And he is like, uh, you know, you've, she's come to, and she doesn't know where she is. And she's in this nice big house and he's like, honey, you're back. And she's like, who are you? And it becomes an amnesia movie where he's like, well, you know, I'm your husband and you know how much I love you. And you're like, from frame one, you know, something's weird. It's, mm-hmm. it's not hiding the weird. It's instantly like, is, who is he in relation to her? And it seems like he's honest with her when bring up people like her sister and after what happened to your parents you know what you did and you know it's going to take you while i'm just going to look after you and going to keep you away from the rest of the world while we're here and he's very creepy and weird in this it's a very weird role for him he's definitely stretching his his kind of acting muscles by playing this character because it's like a very odd he's an odd kind of guy this character um which is cool and it's really strange and it keeps going where for about an hour and 10 minutes i'd say of this weird like is this just going to be a movie about somebody controlling somebody and keeping them locked away and just kind of you know uh, is he gaslighting her what is it right and then it has the hardest twist and i'll be impressed if somebody sees that coming before i didn't i'm not going to say any more than that and it changes the entire movie and it's like really fun when it makes that turn it might be a little late for some people, because I do think it's a little, the, the world you're stuck in most of the time is a little weird and a little off-putting at sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're like me, and and I'm obviously selling this in a way where it's like, you know, you're going to want to know now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you. So, uh, and and it, I, to be honest, even though somebody told me it was like Dennis's thing was, oh, it has this huge swing twist. I totally forgot why I started watching it. So <laughs> it's like when you just watch a movie and you get sucked into whatever it is. But I thought it was interesting. And 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 like I said, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I had a couple of other interesting people. Elizabeth Cappuccino from Super Dark Times plays her sister. And I like seeing her again. Um, uh, uh, Diane Gulliger uh, plays the mom in that opening scene. Love her. Yeah, I always love, yeah, I always love seeing Diane. So so it was just fun. And it, it, the interesting thing is, even though it's an indie, and I could tell it's probably an, I think it's his first feature, it had a bit more of a James Wan-esque shooting style where you could tell they're trying to make it look bigger and more mm-hmm. in that vibe. And so I think it's effective in that way. It doesn't feel like a gritty, grounded indie. It's a different kind of thing. So that's called The Free Fall. And it's on, I know it's on Amazon because that's where I watched it. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to say let's get naughty. Mm. Um, so I watched Benedetta. Oh. And this is Paul Verhoeven's nunsploitation film. Um, I loved when this trailer came out because I got so many tweets that were like, Paul Verhoeven made a film for you. And it's true. He did. This is basically has me all over it. Um, so this goes full nunsploitation. Wherever you think it's going, oh, it goes there. Um, what's crazy about this is, and somebody else had uh, written about this on Twitter, it feels like a super expensive film. It is a super expensive film, but it is shot 
to look like softcore, um, like in the shooting style. Like it feels like a cheap shooting style. From the and man who so, brought you showgirls. Yeah, from the man who brought you showgirls. I will say this one plays itself a lot more close to the vest than showgirls. Like I don't think, whereas a lot of people watch showgirls and immediately go, oh, it's bad. Like, because there's jokes and things are so satirical that sometimes you can miss them. Same thing with Starship Troopers. Like, you know, from the beginning of Starship Troopers that this is not a straight up action film. It might seem like an action film, but there's a satire element too. This, it plays the satire pretty close to the vest until these very specific moments. Um, And then it goes so over the top. I will specifically say those over the top moments happen in the Jesus scenes and the sex scenes. So the whole setup of this is Benedetta is this nun in this um, Middle Ages nunnery, and she is she's always had these visions of Jesus. And as she is kind of coming of age, these visions get wild, like ripped Jesus with a knife, taking down people who are threatening her. Then it gets mm. sexual, and it is just these. It's honestly like my favorite scene portrayal of Jesus ever. Like I love this version of Jesus. And then you've also got these sex scenes, which, and this is not a spoiler, you know it's coming, it's in the trailer. Um, she starts having um, attraction to one of the other nuns in the convent. And so you start getting these sex scenes. Also, while, and her, this is kind of her whole character, is she has these lavish visions of Jesus where he talks to her. But you never really know through most of the movie if she is actually having these visions or if she is just kind of doing it um, in a very much kind of Vanessa Redgrave's devil's way to kind of stir the pot and just see the insanity that mm. ensues. You kind of get that it might be a mix of both. And then it gets a little bit more clear as it's going on. But the big thing is she's she's having, you get that she does actually have some of these like crazy Jesus visions. Like she truly thinks she's like Jesus's like love bride. Um and then it goes from there. Oh my God, this one gets crazy. Simultaneous to her having these crazy visions and telling the convent about them, there is also a comet that is traveling overhead of the, the convent. And um, so you've got this comment and everybody is immediately like, oh my God, it's a warning from God. No, it's foretelling evil. And then you've also got the plague happening in the background. So the bubonic plague is coming and they're trying to keep it out. And everybody's looking for signs from God about whether the plague's going to come take down the tiny convent. And oh, well, if we're pious enough or if we you know, self-flagellate enough and whip ourselves into a bloody pulp, then the plague won't come get us. It's all about faith. Um, this one, it just has a lot of everything. And what's even wilder, so I watched this and I was like, oh, this is so exploitive and over the top and wild. And the whole church is corrupt the entire time. Like every single person in the church is just corrupt as shit. At simultaneous to watching this, I had been listening to a great courses podcast on the history of the Middle Ages. And um, it's pretty dead on. It's really not that far off with some of the portrayals of um, the sex and how corrupt everybody was and how quick they are to be like a comet. It's Jesus talking to us. No, it's the devil smiting us. And just, you know, how how kind of rampant the the um, accuse the accusing people of like various sins was. And it's just it's a wild fucking watch. I will because he, he spent like ten years writing a book on Jesus. Like before this, I know he really. Of, yeah, he's written a few volumes about Christ, the life of Christ, and stuff. So when he wasn't making movies, which is and and when you watch Robocop again through that lens, you're like, oh yeah, this is just like Christ metaphor after Christ metaphor. Yes. Yeah, so, so. 
you definitely see a Christ metaphor develop with the nun um, and her obsession with Jesus and kind of how she's portraying herself. And I can see that he definitely did some research in this. Cause like I said, there's little things like in this, um, the nuns are not in the convent. Most of them because they're pious individuals who want to donate their lives to Jesus. They're all prostitutes who have bought their way in because it's better than being a prostitute. P- kids who have been sold to the convent because their parents can't afford to, you know, pay a dowry to get them married off. Um, people who are running from stuff like none of the nuns are there out of dedication to Jesus. It's much more of like, a, well, this is better than living on the streets. So um, cool. Love Jesus. And it goes from there. And that apparently is very factual um, as to how most of the nuns ended up at the convent, that they were mostly sold there or trying to escape prostitution or other life choices hmm. um not choices kind of the hands they'd been dealt and even kind of how the plague was portrayed is apparently quite realistic so yeah go verhoven but then it goes full nunsploitation and you get amazing amazing nunsploitation um mixed with horror so yeah this is this is in it gets tortury it's like everything all of the major like check boxes of a standard nunsploitation film from the 1970s oh this is going to have a lot of it so yeah. yeah, I mean, he hasn't slowed <laughs> down. I mean, his his film before. I don't know if you saw that one yet, but it's it's that was one of the best. Like, I mean, it's a tough subject matter, but L, the one he made called L, and it's kind of kind of like a version of a rape revenge, but not. I don't think I did. It's it's the actress um, Isabel Hubert. It's just it has an opening scene that is kind of unforgettable, where it, it's something so rough and violent, and then it just cuts to like a cat watching. With no, you know, and and it's just the way Verhoeven does things. He he's so fearless in that way. But I, I he's a guy who hasn't lost his edge into his eighties, I guess now. So mm-hmm. you know, his films are always um, fascinating to me. Um, okay, uh, just a short one um, because to go from non-exploitation, I have to at least mention because anyone who knows me knows I am in the top two fans of this person, <laughs> despite the political beliefs being radically different. Uh, Vincent Gallo, me and Jackson Stewart might be. The- <laughs> We might be the two biggest Vincent Gallo fans still, and I, I will never apologize for my love Ow. of the great American artist who is who. Oh. And it actually watching uh, watching this, it broke my heart a little to think this is the first time he's been on screen in ten years. Which movie is this? So this is called Shut In. This was like premiered on YouTube for one one viewing of it, and he hadn't been in a film for ten years. So this is why I had to see it because I'm a Vincent Gallo completionist and I will He quit remember. updating his like crazy website where he was like selling his sperm for $10,000. No, and I got a discount code for Colors of the Dark fans. <laughs> if you listen and you type in COTD on Vincent Gallo's site, you will get inseminated by him for only $850,000, which is a steal for baby Gallo's. Um, anyway, he, uh, yeah, no, like, like when I see his social medias these days, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about anymore, but I still love your early movies and, and oh. but, but i do think he's where he's underrated like he's his films are awesome i loved his two early films but where he's underrated is just as a screen presence he he is um it's just like one of those guys who walks on screen you're like oh yeah there aren't many people like this left anymore like, <clears throat> true character way two. yeah exactly Freeway i know two. your feelings i know your feelings. <laughs> trick baby. No, and trick baby he changes trick baby and it's just it's like this intensity and and um, we were talking about um uh, trouble every day. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's same. His work with Claire Denis. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's he's also just interesting, and so I I like 
tuning into this as like, oh, is he going to be just phoning it in or something? So this is DJ Caruso directed by who did Disturbia back in the day. So it's like, it's just what's interesting is it's like this tight, like I don't get into the politics around where where movies playing and all that. I just don't want to even think like that. But it's just what's funny about this movie is it's like a tight little nasty little exploitation movie, basically. You know, it's it's basically um, a mom who has two kids. She's a young mother uh, played by Rainey Quayley, really good, uh, strong performance. Uh, she's the sister of Margaret Quayley and, and all that. She, she basically has to look after these two little kids. Uh, she has just recently herself gotten clean. She was an addict. I read this script. Oh my gosh. This was on the blood list or one of them. I remember reading this script. Oh my gosh. Continue. Sorry. So yeah, she, so she's uh, gotten out of um, rehab. She has a bad relationship with um, Vast of Nights uh, actor, Jake Horowitz, who's her ex, who's still, all messed up on all sorts of drugs. And um, basically she's trying to get her two kids out of this. Um, I think she's going to go move in with her mom or something like that at the start. And she's trying to leave this old house. And just before they can leave, in comes her ex uh, bringing all sorts of bad energy and bringing his buddy who is Vincent Gallo. And you know what struck me watching it this time? This was like, oh, Vincent Gallo, you know what he's got? He's got, he's a better actor, but he's got a Krug vibe. Like as a person, he brings in that Krug energy from like Last House or something. David Hess kind of vibe, like something where you don't know what's going to happen. And, and this guy comes in and it's even it's even tossed around that he might have been a child molester. And it makes it really like uh, every time he's around and she's like, he has to leave this house. He is not allowed in this house. And eventually there's this pantry that has a sh- closing door that's like a heavy door. She ends up getting trapped in her own pantry and it's impossible to get out by her ex and then her ex and and gallo leave but of course now she's got a baby and a young like six-year-old girl in the house that can't get in and she can't get out so she's trying to talk them through you know um basically you know how to survive the night and what to eat and she you know she's trying to keep them fed and then some time passes i'll only go up to the here and then one of the one person comes back in the house and it's vincent gallo not her husband and she's now terrified. She's trapped, shut in, and she's worried what's going to happen as Vincent Gallo is left alone. And he does some really good behind-the-door acting, and there's something that reminds me a bit of inside that happens uh, between them and under a door and some pretty intense. There's some pretty cool exploitation stuff in there. But it's just, you know, it's a it's a tight, tight little, you know, high-concept thriller. Uh, but, you know, you know me. I'm a Gallo completionist. I will, this first time mm. in 10 years, whether we'll get another one, I don't know. But I thought he was solid, and I was... I was, uh, you know, just mostly missing that he's not in more, and I don't get the vibe uh, that he will. You know, you uh, know. Hey, I, I can't apologize for what I was born a gallo. I'm, I'm holding the eye rolls, but yeah. yeah. Um, so, well, I'm gonna take us out with some books here. Um, okay. So, and I will say, I've been. Um, I, I joined Goodreads, which is uh-huh. like the letterbox of reading. Um, where you log books and you share what you want to read and things like that. And I've been interacting with some of our listeners on there and getting recommendations, which has been really great. And one of our listeners just recommended, and Monty also emailed me about it, this one called The Mary Shelley Club. Uh And it was weird because I heard from um, one of the listeners on Goodreads and then Monty within the same 24 hours saying like, holy shit, you have to read this. I'm halfway through this. I won't talk about it yet, but just that it's it's coming and apparently it's great i will say the first half has been amazing um the mary shelley book club but the two that i did read this week i did two graphic novels um freaks of the heartland i'll kick off with this one this is dark horse um this is one from steve niles who i love dearly i love steve i remember seeing steve niles 
when I was like a teenager going into punk shows in DC. He used to play with this band I saw called Three. And um, this is after his band Grey Matter. And I remember seeing him in that band um, as part of like the Discord shows when I was a kid. And uh, so I love, I love kind of seeing his, his career progression. Um, this one, it's a really cool story to the point that I'm really surprised it has not been picked up as a TV show. It is a kid living with his parents in Midwestern, like corn country, like completely rural town. You get the feeling that his dad is really abusive and that his mom has been giving birth and something happens to the kids. That's like all you get is that he had brothers and sisters and that he is the only one left and then he walks out to the barn and you see one of the brothers and why he's being kept in the barn Hmm. and it kind of goes from there and it's basically it turns into like an x-men in the midwest where it's like these mutant quote just because it's in the title freak children being born that are being disregarded and kind of locked up and you know the weirdo brother who's chained up in the barn, but they all have these superpowers and there's something really charming about it. And so, again, I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't gone somewhere because it does feel like, like an interesting alterniverse to X-Men for me. Hmm. Um, the second one that I read is Sea of Sorrows, which is an IDW title. This was recommended to me on Twitter. And this one I absolutely loved. I mean, it's aquatic horror, but aside from that, it's just, it's really cool artwork and I liked the history of it. So after um, World War I, there's a group of soldiers that are searching for this sunken U-boat, this German U-boat that they think is full of gold bars. And so um, it's like, late 1920s early 30s they are doing this like deep sea diving where it's like you know somebody in this like massive bell suit sinking down to the bottom of the ocean it's all like really scary stuff and they find more than gold down there and it gets really supernatural it melds in a lot of really awesome sea folklore that i was excited to see kind of portrayed in not a contemporary light but in this kind of historical like it blended really well with the 1920s um or i guess it was late 20s early 30s time period that the rest of the story was set in awesome art awesome creature like the creature art in this is just dynamite mm-hmm. um so if you into your aquatic horror CSRs from IDW was good. That was a fun read. All right. And uh, yeah, so um, let's bite <laughs> into our next films. I'm going to be doing that for a while, y'all. Get used to oh, it. Oh, boy. <laughs> Today's Colors of the Dark is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? So this month's BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you make just as much as everyone else does. So this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash C-O-T-D that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash C-O-T-D 
Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Okay, guys, we are back and we are ready to chew on some tasty, tasty information. Y'all see what I did there? Oh yeah. Oh my God, she wrote um, that. I, she's using I a teleprompter for Christ's sake. I did that teleprompter. She's watching it live. I've got lots more meat coming. Mm. Oh, so much. Um, I'll stop there. I'm just yeah. going to stop. Um, but we tonight in uh, lead up to the new Texas Chainsaw film, we are going to be talking about cannibals. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, the history of kind of larger cannibals, and then some of our favorite cannibal picks within that. And so we had to bring in the one person that Elric and I know loves the Texas Chainsaw franchise. So much so that on Twitter a couple of days ago, he was trying to make sense of the timeline, which was just beautiful. So welcome to the show, Brian Collins. Hi. I, I don't even know if Brian, like, I have actually no clue what he thinks about this entire franchise. All I know is that I saw you tr- trolling on Twitter, writing <laughs> writing your thoughts on the chronology. So that's good enough, I think. I know that Brian is at least really savvy on this because when we have done Texas Chainsaw rounds at Trivia, Brian fucking fools that shit. Um, so I, I have to say he's at least seen them all and has thoughts, which, which is all that you can really expect from any franchise. I mean, <laughs> all you can really ask for in a series. Cause I was going to say it's thoughts. the craziest in terms of chronology, but then I'm always like, oh no, there's always Amityville. We'll always have that. Yeah. That's that, but that's yeah. un- indecipherable because they actually really have nothing in common. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Amityville can't even really count as a franchise. No. Really, and the rights are a word that is not, yeah, you can call anything Amityville. So people do. Yeah. 
uh, but yeah, the chainsaw series. I mean, as far as I know, you are supposed to get some kind of permission, <laughs> to do this. but it, <laughs> it seems that they never get permission to do anything that's involving any of the other films except for the original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's and that's kind of why we have this continuity Holocaust uh, <laughs> that uh, that occurs, and and I would never ever to anyone, and I know a lot of people are doing it because of the new one never recommend trying to watch them all like in a kind of marathon <laughs> or even with even in a month i think i think uh, the more time you have between each entry the better off you'll be the better <laughs> the films will come across no i, I think the you two will be vague on the on the on the details and you'll be like well maybe that did happen so when like part three starts with a uh opening uh, this is the leather this is the first one called leatherface texas chance massacre three this uh, is Jeff Burr's, Jeff right? Burr's this one uh, got an X rating, if memory serves, yeah. right? It, like, it was fucking nuts. Uh, when it starts with an opening crawl that describes a film you did not see, <laughs> you know, maybe <laughs> maybe you could be like, oh, I guess I missed that one. Or maybe that happened that I don't remember. But if you watch it right after part two, you're like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like, they're, that, yeah. that character's not in the movie. <laughs> Well, you know, you brought up a good point about time spacing. So even if we look between the first and second film, there is a 12 year gap. And so I'm always intrigued by like, you know, 1974, Toby Hooper, what happened 12 years later that they were like, okay, y'all time for a sequel. Um, And I'm guessing that it was just like the 80s of spinning out sequels for Freddie and Jason and everything else. And they were like, why the hell not? Yeah, Psycho 2 had come out and and did well. And it's just like, oh, there's nothing that's too old that we can't, you know, revive. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have the original director, there's obviously going to be some you know, some sort of credibility there. And canon, you know, because it's yeah. canon, they're trying to, yeah, they're trying to build franchises and and things that they know might still have legs, yeah. uh, obviously. Well, we'll get to, 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 obviously, in a second, because as we go through, I think between one, two, and three, they're also, I feel like that would actually be fun in a theater to watch one, two, and three, because they're so yeah, different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some, you know, some kind of continuity between the three. I mean, it's not, you don't get the whiplash or the confusion. It's not like you're like, wait, what is this? You know, three isn't directly acknowledging two, but it's not erasing it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and it, it, then that's the sort of thing you run into later. So, none of us have seen the new one, just so everyone knows this will be dropping the day it comes out on Netflix. So, this is all kind of lead up to, but um, where do you guys, I, I feel like I kind of know it from Becca, but where do you f- land on the first one in terms of like uh, horror canon? I know friends of ours would be Halloween's the greatest horror film of all times, The Shining. Mm-hmm. Whoever. For me, even though it's not my favorite, I, I've always felt Texas Chainsaw is the best horror film ever made because it it just feels like as close to a nightmare as I've ever seen. And it's unrelenting and it's scary and we, and it's daylight, a lot of it, yeah. which is hard mm-hmm. to pull off. So wh- wh- how do you guys feel and when did you see it first time? Both of you, I'm curious. So I think I've probably told this story on one of our prior shows. We got like a decade's worth now. Um, But I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was in 11th grade and I was home with the chicken pox. And everybody, everybody's like, oh my God, why do we need chicken pox vaccinations? Wait till you get it when you're 16. That shit fucks (laughs) you up. Um, And I was out of school for like two weeks. I had them in my throat. I had them under my eyelids, um, under my fingernails. Like it was awful. And 
I was sick. Um, ended up being hospitalized for a couple of nights with it, but then I was just home. Um, and, and spent like two weeks and every single day, my mom would bring me a stack of videos, just like clearing the shelves of the video store. Um, and, and she'd bring me like five new tapes every day. And that's all I did literally for like two weeks stretch. And I remember her bringing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And at that point, it was just throw whatever is on that stack in. And I watched a lot of garbage during that time. Um, but it's just weird because I was so sick. I have vivid memories of everything I saw during that time. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I really remember because it was the most haunting. Like it was one that stuck with me because I'd never seen anything else like it. So much so um, that even though I never have considered it to be my favorite franchise, I ended up writing a big chunk of my dissertation on it um, just because I consider it to be such a product of its time where it is post-Vietnam. It is a reflection of ultra-violence. It's using newsreel aesthetic. It's completely against kind of the classical cinematic styles of the 1960s and pushing into something that we've never seen before. It feels unhinged. It feels post-war. It feels PTSD. Um, so yeah, it's it's had a huge impact on me. Um even back from from when I first saw it. And Collins's um thesis, I believe, was on the filmography of John Larroquette. So I'm curious uh, how that fits in with his work. Uh, plus yeah, the second sight and, and Madhouse, but then I did, you know, I did throw in a mm-hmm. little message. Uh no, I actually uh and I've told this story before, but I'm not sure on one of your podcasts, but uh, I saw the movie when I was seven. Oh shit. Okay. My, wow. Uh, my mother uh, was always very cool about renting horror movies for me if I wanted to see them. Uh I should watch them with me. Uh violence was always okay, just nudity. I had to nudity I had to block my eyes. I should fast forward it or whatever. I'm not quite sure why. Did she fast forward Franklin? <laughs> Raspberries. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um and I just I distinctly and I actually uh you know I just put it away. I had the movie up here because I just rewatched it. But in the the Dark Sky, um the Dark Sky uh Blu-ray set uh, I hate because it's the size of a DVD and I can't put it with the Blu-rays on the shelf just uh, to go yeah. in the DVD section. But if you open it up, the gatefold image is um is Kirk at the door just before you know, when he's like, Hello, hello. And that I love that because that is the exact shot that I paused the movie on when I first watched it and was like, I need my buddy Matt to watch this, my neighbor, uh, who's also a horror fan. Uh, it's a little older than me. And uh, so, we, you know, we paused the movie and called him up, say, hey, like, you know, you want to come over? I think he ended up having a sleepover. So it took a little while. And I just sat there watching this this fr- frozen frame of him at the doorway. And, you know, at that point in the movie, nothing overtly scary it happened. A Leatherface is obviously about to make his big entrance. The only thing that really happened was was uh the hitchhiker scene. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know, but the and also just like the general uneasiness of it. And I was just like, all right, I know my my kid want to watch this with me. And so I just always remember just staring at that image wondering, oh, what's gonna happen next? Mm. What's gonna happen next? Uh-huh. And obviously Leatherface makes his debut, you know, like thirty seconds later. Um so yeah, I I'm the same where I think it's like kind of like a perfect horror movie, but I would never I don't consider it one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know if that's because the sequels largely left me cold. So I just, you know, when you think, cause you think of it as like a franchise, um, you know, it's like Halloween. I, I love, you know, a lot of the sequels and Halloween is my favorite movie. So it's like, oh, 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 there goes the water. The whole, <laughs> the whole shebang is fine. You know, Friday 13th. I love all, you know what I mean? But like Chainsaw, it's like, 
a perfect movie and then a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like somebody that like kind of likes the whole package. So as a result, I don't end up revisiting chainsaw as often as i do the others and the focus Um, and like as the series goes the focus on who we're who is the villain right like it's always you know we know it's jason and freddie but with this even though a lot of them are called leatherface i feel like there's some of these sequels where you know he's got much less screen time than some of his brothers or cousins Mm -hmm. or dads or whoever the fuck they are in half these movies um which you know i think dilutes it constantly um and then the biggest problem that i chart with the series is the fact that like what works in the first one so well is how like a nightmare we know fucking nothing like i don't know he like leatherface comes out of nowhere oh my god grabs us closes the door it's like to spend multiple movies explaining backstory of a family and stuff it just really it does really i mean it can be fun and and has its moments but it really does let the air out of what is scary about it um Mm -hmm. and you know that's that's pretty typical of sequels but i think particularly when I was looking over these, you know, before we get into them. But the first one, okay, we all agree. Basically a, a perfect horror film. I, I will also say yeah. to people, the first um, uh, DVD commentary I ever heard was this one. And I think I learned more about filmmaking than I have from anything else. Like, it was just great. It was like, not just Toby, it was like other people would come in for chunks and the cinematographer would talk about, you know, the shot that follows yeah. the girl in the short shorts, mm-hmm. low angle towards, it, it was the just great. thorns yeah. that they were running through. And I have to say that um, one of the things that I learned from the DVD commentary, because I watched one eons ago, um, but I, I've always said that this, it, Texas Chainsaw, the original, is the only movie that I can watch and smell. Yeah. Like I can smell that movie just from <laughs> watching it and then hearing them talk about how bad it smelled on set because every single one of the props was real and the rotting. real carcasses. I think, um, I think there was a story. I think it was when Friedkin still the best Q and a in my entire life ever going to was uh Friedkin talking to Toby Hooper. I don't know. It was at the L um, L captain, whatever, whatever the one in Las Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the 40th or whatever, but the stories yeah. were so good. And I didn't realize how important Friedkin was to getting that film out in LA mm-hmm. and getting it in front of people, which was cool. But he just talked about at one point, yeah, they took like, you know, hundreds of dead carcasses in the back because they were stinking the joint up and mm-hmm. lit a bonfire, not realizing things, it would make it a thousand times worse. And it was basically <laughs> like death, you know, and they were all, everyone was so unhappy on the shoot in general. General, I think uh, I don't think Toby was the most popular during the making of this one, but I, I do love on one of the documentaries when they're talking about the the dinner scene. You know, anybody that's ever looked at any information about the production of the movie knows they they shot the dinner scene over like a the whole thing basically in one shoot because uh, the guy didn't want to keep putting the grandpa hmm. uh, makeup on. And uh, there's like a montage of people saying how long the shoot was. And it's like, oh, we were, we were there for 25 hours. And the next guy's like 27 hours and then 30 hours. And then one guy, it might have been Bob Bird, but somebody just goes like, yeah, what's Toby up to now? 40 hours. <laughs> 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 and Grandpa was paid by a 20-year-old, right? Like, yeah. Like yeah. a kid. He's oh, actually, wow. he's in... 3D. Oh, okay. And now he's actually like roughly the age he should have been. Oh, funny. <laughs> Play the old guy. Um, wow. Okay, so let's fast forward 12 years, okay. which is the longest gap by far of any of these mm-hmm. sequels. After yeah. that, it's about five or six is the most. Uh, and yet the only time there's ever a direct link. Yeah, right? Yeah, and, and the direct link. <laughs> Totally, there is not because <laughs> no, not by the time that we jump twelve years, yeah. um, a lot has happened in the world and in the face of horror. So by the time that Texas Chainsaw Massacre two rolls out twelve years later, it's like a screwball comedy. 
Um, and this one I find interesting because whereas with Texas Chainsaw, we spend half the film getting to know our protagonist, the group of kids, and then we slowly get introduced to the family. And it doesn't happen until, you know, we're midway through the film by the time Leatherface even bursts out of that door. Mm -hmm. um, with this, you just jump on screen and assume you know the dude with the chrome plate in his head, who he is yeah. <laughs> and what he's doing. He's just there. We're just yeah. going in. Um, and, and it's set up as a comedy, but still with the same intense horror graphic horror that they had in the first one. And I mean, they knew what they were doing with this. I mean, even just looking at like the breakfast club cover, you can only assume that, you know, they knew exactly what they were going for. It feels almost parody ish. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. It's, it's, it's gotta be, I, I was trying to think of another, but I really couldn't find one where, um, apart from, uh, uh, Drayton, the actor, uh, uh, Bill Sido, uh, Jim Sido, sorry. Um, every other person that made the original was not involved except for Toby. So, mm -hmm. I mean, usually you see like a couple of producers or like, you know, a lot of the core cast. And it's like the director is usually one of the first things to go in a, in a sequel because uh, they don't want to do the same thing twice or whatever. But like this is like the complete opposite where it's it's Toby Hooper with a completely different team you know, working with him on either, you know, and pretty much, you know, different leather phase, obviously different, different heroes. There's no mention of, of, uh, of, uh, Sally or what happened to her. It's, mm -hmm. you know, we're focusing on, you know, what happened to Leatherface and then cook. Um, and I think that's a, a, an odd approach to take for a sequel and then made even odder by the fact, you know, of the tone that they are going for, which is like this super strange, you know, I read somewhere it's like, oh, he was upset that people didn't realize how funny the first one was, mm. and therefore he wanted to go. I'm like, well, well, I mean, is that revisionist or is it really? Because I've seen the first one a lot, nothing in it strikes me as particularly funny. No, you don't. You'd only laugh out of fear. Yeah, you'd yeah. Yeah. dinner I mean, table scene or saying you'd laugh you know, out. Maybe of you laugh at like Franklin's, you know, just incessant whining or something, yeah. you know, like or something like that. But it's not. If they were going for comedy in the first one, they failed. <laughs> right. um, so I don't know if that was just, you know, like a revisionist thinking or maybe there's something they did intend that, you know, through editing or something got lost, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, you could, you know, it, and, and, you know, a child could see the difference in tone in the, mm -hmm. the two films, despite, you know, Toby link, linking them. But somehow Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is equally watchable. Mm -hmm. Like it's so far beyond the first one, but I mm -hmm. can still watch that and be like, okay, you know what? This is weird. I'm in. Yeah. Well, it's got a great yeah, final girl, great set design. One of the best, mm -hmm. uh, clearly one of the most heroic heroes I've ever seen in Dennis mm -hmm. Hopper, um, yeah. <laughs> which I'm, I remember when I first watched it. <laughs> all down. He's basically the worst hero ever. It's like, it's all build up and then it's just, he falls down a hole. It's like, oh, sorry, Dennis <laughs> Hopper. Uh, and I was convinced as a kid, I don't know, I, I even propagated. It makes sense that I became a podcaster who would end up uh, propagating rumors that probably aren't any fact at all but when i was young i told everyone who had listened so people probably still believe this that uh hopper and toby hooper were brother-in-laws <laughs> and everyone believed it and i believed it and i don't know where i got that and i grew up like thinking because there there's one letter between i did not know what's wrong with me anyway that's how i became a podcaster probably uh <laughs> but i do i think the red humor that mcgarris often talks about is this is the movie where you mm -hmm. get that and i've also never seen a movie 
directed more to say Spielberg had nothing to fucking do with this movie. Oh, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't come near this one, so <laughs> it's perfect in that and way. You know, for what for its credit, there is a jump in that movie that gets me every time I watch it. Mm. It's after uh it's uh, stretches in the tunnel, and I think it's it's right after she comes up on Dennis Harper, but doesn't realize it's him because he's on the other side of the tunnel or whatever. And he he's cutting something and he kind of, she thinks it's Leatherface. So she turns and runs the opposite direction and then Leatherface jumps out at her. And that is a very well-directed mm-hmm. jump that gets me, you know, even this stuff, just recently rewatching it. I've seen the movie a million times, but I was got me again. Good job. But also so probably still some scariness to it and some intensity. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's it takes a while to get to that mm-hmm. whereas the first one was kind of leaving you unease right from the start i mean even though this one has that big bridge kill thing at the beginning it's already feeling kind of heightened and wacky i mean it yeah. starts on a chilly cook-off i mean yeah yeah you know and it doesn't really let up for a while it's it's a while i would say it's not until the radio station where they show up at the radio station well when chop chop appears really yeah at the radio station is when it starts like oh yeah this is a horror movie <laughs> But it, so then know. we uh, we shift into three in 1990. So only a four year gap then. So it must have done well if four years later they were turning around to do a third sequel. Um, this one's written by David Scow and directed by Jeff Burr. And this one they really tried to push the envelope with. Like this one, it got an X rating. It was way more extreme than I feel like I've seen in any of the prior two so far. What got it in trouble? I, I remember it, what not not just this film, but something else was going on in censorship that this film got dragged into been 1990 yeah, it wasn't i think it was it was mostly um the mpaa just not being you know just remembering the title because obviously yeah. two went out with the x or whatever um the if memory serves it was a lot of it was the little girl being involved with uh, the killings that they yeah, took yeah. a lot of offense to um and then uh what was the other thing something else here it is um let's see here i'm looking for i mean and also i mean yeah. it, there was also the test screening element where they people loved ken foray and they want ken foray to live so he yeah ends up surviving that. for no reason even though he got his head cut off uh, i mean weirdly enough this has always been my favorite of the sequels but again mm-hmm. uh, again watching so i remember watching the unrated one and being kind of blown away by it because the gore was so graphic and oh, i yeah. loved it but then last a couple nights ago because I didn't know which version I was watching, you know, when I put on, it was the right, you know, the censored version and it, and it yeah. is much weaker. You, you, because oh, yeah. without those moments, you don't, I still have fun watching it, um, because yeah. it's goofy and it, you know, it's got Vigor Mortensen and, you know, it's got a lot of fun. I think Foray's actually really fun in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Gulliger's mom. John Gulliger's mom is oh, the yeah. head of the whole family. It's so cool. Yeah, she's great. And she's really good. She's got the voice box and it's just, it's got an eerie, yeah. uh, presence to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, but it, I do feel the difference. I think when you do, it's very easy to neuter. You you know, horror sometimes is exactly you're, you're watching the actual film for those moments. And when you neuter that, you've actually yeah. there's actually nothing left. And, and, yeah. and you could say, oh, the story's still fine. It's like, no, but you've actually it's not it's nothing now once you do that to a film. And I think this is sadly one of those movies that really it's a very different experience without those those scenes. But yeah, um, I mean, the, yeah. the one death is incoherent in the rated. Yeah. Death, when the yeah. Uh, what's his name? William Butler's death. Yeah. You can't, there's no way to actually tell what is happening yeah. when he dies because of the way they cut it up. Yeah. And um, I mean, they, they cut a grant. It was slightly over five minutes that they yeah, cut from not, the movie. It's not an insignificant amount. It's not yeah. like one of those like, oh, there's four frames missing. You know, no. Like, and when you're minutes. thinking, 
that five minutes comes from the kill sequences um, solely. It's literally like cutting them in half um, mm-hmm. or more. So yeah, this was a, a big ch- cut. I liked this one because for me, it exacerbated the um, the redneck exploitation element yeah. of it. Um, not that the first two didn't definitely touch on that, but this one, they just leaned on this whole hog and was like, okay, we're inbred family. Let's do this. Like when I look at like what Rob Zombie started doing later on, I always think, oh, this has the Texas Chainsaw 3 feel to it, where it is just this inbred family out for themselves. And 3 definitely has the most overt cannibalism mm-hmm. aspect of the whole series, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I mean, you literally have Leatherface. He's got like that speak and spell thing. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. you know, it's like, what is this? And it's a clown. He keeps typing food over and over. <laughs> uh, and you know, it's like, and uh, my favorite line in the movie, uh, Ken Foray says, uh, "Why don't you leave us alone?" And Vigo is deadpan. We're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Vigo's good in it. I like Vigo. In the- Vigo's great. Yeah. He's great. I wish he could have played more. You know, kind of psycho. But you know, yeah. McConaughey got his killer Joe to sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Revisit yeah. Filmer. Uh, well, maybe Easter promises a little bit. You know, he, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. it's a good one. But but yeah, but three is really watchable, and even the censor version, it's still fun. I think the characters you still kind of get who they all are compared to the mm-hmm. films you've seen before. So even though it's a, it also had the best trailer. I one of my top oh, couple yeah. trailers ever. Um, the golden, uh, the golden it's just such a yeah. funny, yeah. you know, it, which isn't really like the film. It's that trailer yeah. where you would think it's more like part two than part mm-hmm. three, which is a straight horror film, really part three. Does he look like the same leather face? In the no, trailer? no, no. Yeah. And I like the leg thing, the leg brace and the noise. Yeah. I think that's a really cool addition uh, to where it's going. You know, I kind of, I feel like Leatherface maybe needed a bigger ending to that one. You know, it's a little yeah. weak in terms of where it ends. Um, I was noticing in the whole series, two is pretty much the only one that like puts Leatherface down at the end. Mm-hmm. Like he gets the chainsaw through the gut and then he's presumably exploded. Um, you know, and three in keeping with, you know, the, the, a shape of the shape of things to come three kind of picks and choose what's to, what to take from two, mm-hmm. um, like stretches in it for a second. It's like an unbuilt cameo. Um, so obviously they're acknowledging that two happened, but like in a different way or something. It doesn't make any sense. But again, that's kind of part. That's what well, something we'll have to get used to as the series goes on. <laughs> but Leatherface's leg injury seems to be a direct response to the end of one, where he, you know, he cuts his leg, which they address, which they didn't address in two, but we no, do see the result of it in three. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we're building the mythos here, which takes us into four. Now things are going to get real weird. So four is 1995. This is Kim Hinkle who's involved in the first one. Um, And then we also, this was the one that is infamous for being Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey's first film. And and it Um, came out because of it. Like it was shell, it was basically just on a shelf. Because I remember going to film school, going to university and this came out. And you could tell it was from a while ago, and it was because Renee Zellweger and McConaughey just became famous. So they like waited, yeah. And then it popped out, and I, I remember not understanding this one at all at the time, but I have not Next. watched it since. So I'm very curious if it aged better. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I also have not seen this since oh, the late okay. '90s. So oh, wow. Brian, you're Oof. our resident all expert right. on this one because yeah, I rewatched <laughs> it um, probably maybe 2000s when I realized that Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey were in it and then when they were famous and I was like oh fuck let's rewatch it and it was really hard to find at the time I remember that like I had to hunt for it and I have not seen it since then well until I mean until Screen Factory did their release 
um, just, you know, like I think four years ago or something. Um, the only official release it had on DVD here was a, I believe it was Lionsgate DVD that when you open it up, the disc just said Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's it. There's <laughs> nothing else on the disc. So it looked like a bootleg. And the bootleg <laughs> is actually how I first saw the movie because, you know, it was on the shelf or whatever, but it had gotten some kind, it had a very small theatrical, like regional release or something, mm-hmm. both before and after. Um, it was like 95, it came out. And a different title, then, right? Wasn't it called like. Yeah, so it was called Return, Return. Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Weird. in 95. And then. After McConaughey and Zellweger got big, they re-released it as Texas Chainsaw The Next Generation, which is how most people know it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they cut it, so it was missing about 10 minutes. Mm. And it was a very arbitrary cut. I mean, they cut this one extended chunk out right at the beginning uh, but with Renee Zellweger's character where her stepfather was abusing her. Oh. And it was, you know, it's kind of a gross scene. It's it icky, but... As, as much as anything could be called important in this movie, it was kind of an important scene because it was like, this is how she's able to do what she does later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like she already has, she's already got experience dealing with pieces of shit like this. And so there's a moment in the movie where she like stands up to Leatherface and uh, it's dumb no matter what. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, this is Leatherface. You shouldn't have the heroine being like, sit down and shut up. And Leatherface being like, oh, fuck you. Yeah. You know, which literally, I mean, Leatherface is like, oh, like throughout the whole movie. Um, which but which does before, for him, his icon, I think, right? Like, I think that's one of the things we were talking about at the yeah. start. Like, Jason's never doing that. Like, in part yeah. two, you can trick him, and but it's not the same. I mean, I get you got to make it, you got to put your own imprint on it. You got to make yeah. it your own. And I do admire the movie's weirdness. I mean, it's very, if you go back to the original and you think about like the, the, the cemetery scene with like the guy kind of rolling around, like talking to the sky. And then when they first roll up to the, the gas station and that dude just keeps like coming out to wash the window, but then like following cook back and forth with him, like he will only wash the window if cook is talking to them. And otherwise <laughs> it's going to go sit down. Like that sort of weird stuff is like all over four. And I kind of admire that, but I just can't get on board with like, I wish Leatherface wasn't in it. Like yeah, if you just right. take Leatherface out of that movie, and be like, all right, this is like this is the rest of his weird family when he's off doing whatever it is he's doing. Who's McConaughey? I'll probably this? get into it. What's that? Which character McConaughey is, is McConaughey is like the Vigo was in 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 three, but not the same three. character, not the same name. No, not at all. They're, they're all completely different yeah, characters. Again, Grandpa is back, <laughs> and he's alive again. So again, we're dealing with like ignoring <laughs> yeah. the other movies again because um, he was definitely killed in three. Uh, they eat pizza now. They're not cannibals anymore. <laughs> That's um, cool. Meat lovers. Okay. It, it took its place. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just such a, like, this very kooky Austin vibe to the mm-hmm. whole thing that, like, sometimes works in its favor. Other times it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, McConaughey is obviously, and Zellweger too, but, you know, Zellweger's playing kind of a standard you know, final girl, she's, mm-hmm. you know, a part, they cut, I mean, the, the version of the movie that's easiest to see. And in fact, on the Screen Factory, uh, release the the uncut one is like DVD VHS quality. They couldn't find the uh-huh. elements, uh-huh. so the the lesser version of the movie is like the one that's on the main disc. Um, the trailer looked pretty well. Like rewatching the trailer just yeah. before the show, it looked 
so much more fun than I remember because there was like a, yeah. there was a yeah. dance and a party and everyone and I was like all I remember is a very long scene where McConaughey's taunting her for that felt like half the movie just yeah that's, and it's a lot it's, it gets very repetitive yeah. they, the kids all uh, they kill the two guys off almost instantly and then the other girl is alive for almost the movie just like constantly being like re-killed like you think she's dead and she turns out she's not like so they hang around the meat hook she gets away they set her on fire she gets away like i mean it's like torture but not really because mm-hmm. it's almost presented as like a comical thing that's mm-hmm. that's weird so you basically just have zellweger throughout most of it and it's just like the same old like sit down they put her at the dinner table ah, we're gonna scream in your face for a while and she kind of gets away and they get her back and you know and then there's i don't know if either of you remember rothman no. Illuminati. Okay, so there's an Illuminati oh, character I do. that I shows do up. I do remember yeah. the weird we conspiracy out, yeah, theory. Yeah, we find stuff. out that mm-hmm. the Sawyer family is under the, uh, they're on the payroll of the Illuminati, and it's kind of like a martyrs thing where like the oh. Illuminati is interested in like, like bringing people like true fear into the brink of death to know what it is or something. It's weird. Just like what the fuck is going on, man? Like, I yeah, I remember the the weird yeah. conspiracy theory stuff that yeah. went along with it. Yeah. Um, and that's about all I remember. And of course, what it's become kind of most known for is uh, the the gender bend Leatherface, yeah. which I don't even know how to approach because it's it's so kind of wedged into this otherwise work murky movie that yeah. Holy shit! Um, I don't even remember it's that. It's a cool idea done <laughs> horribly because that? they yeah. make. It's a cool idea. I mean, there is some element of it in the first one, so it's not like it came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. He it's is just wearing- that Leatherface is constantly whining and being submissive yeah and it's just like why not like he could put on the dress and even give him cleavage at one point that's fine i don't have a problem with that i have a problem with the fact that like leatherface is now the butt of everybody's jokes Mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's just like a weird byproduct of 90s attitudes towards cross-dressing and that sort of thing um or if it's like the filmmakers just thought Leatherface was stupid. You know, it's just one of those things is like, whatever you're going for, I don't get, I appreciate that you're trying to do something different. I just don't understand enough of what you're trying to do. Yeah. But it was all Kim Henkel what too. What you're trying to right? make with it. Yeah, yeah. Kim Henkel. And so he wrote and directed and he's been there yeah. from the start. So it's an interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah. but obviously this and is if a I now, remember. Sally he doesn't comes- kill anybody in the movie. Yeah. Leatherface does not uh, actually, oh no, sorry, he does kill, he does club one guy. Huh. And we even get chainsaw. He doesn't chainsaw anybody. That's for sure. And we even get Sally back at the end, if memory serves. Yeah, Sally comes back. Sally's she's uncredited. It's like woman anonymous as woman on gurney or something Mm -hmm. like that. I forget what they they bill it very strangely. And I don't know if that was a rights thing or what, but she's being pushed on a gurney in the hospital at the at the end. Renee Zellweger's alive, and she's talking to the cops or something. The cop she's talking to is the guy who played Grandpa. Huh. And the guy pushing Sally on the gurney is the guy who played Franklin. <laughs> so uh, oh. you, have three, you have three actors from the original. Two of them definitely not playing the same character. If Franklin can walk possibly. now? This is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tremendous. Um, but this is obviously the nail in the coffin for this first four parts. And this is mm-hmm. where it, yeah, this yeah. is the other longest period it dies for. It's eight years. And, eight years. And then we're talking massive reboot. To a kind of big budget, it's what definitely one of the first Platinum Dunes ones. Was it the first one? It was the first, the first yeah. one, yeah. yeah. The first, Marcus Nichol, yeah. 
Yep. And this is right at kind of the the start of what I consider to be the torture porn cycle. And I always mm-hmm. think that this was kind of one of the ones that kind of was a taste of what was to come with like these extreme graphic, dead serious remakes that we're about to see a lot of throughout the mid to late 2000s. Um, but kicked it off with uh, Texas Chainsaw in 2003, which is dead serious compared to the rest of them. Yeah, there's, there's very little, the, the, you know, some of... Uh, early Hermes deliveries are, but it's, again, it's that sort of, you know, dark humor. It's not mm-hmm. comical. It's not, it's not like the tone of four. It's mm-hmm. close to the tone of, you know, maybe three, even, even a little darker than that. Yeah. Um, and they're glossy. Where, I mean, they feel big. Yeah. It feels like a yeah. big, it, it's, it's not the stripped down documentary realism that the first yeah. one goes, right. It's the total opposite. Yeah, it's also, I mean, it's where it's Daniel Pearl actually shot it too. He mm, came back and, cool. um, but it does not look the same. Yeah, it definitely has its own. It's gritty, but it's not. Yeah, it's slick. It's you know, I mean, you got a lot of TV. Jessica Beals, the lead. Yeah. And, oh yeah. And um, who's the other guy there? Eric Balfour, who's on Twenty Four and stuff like that. So it's like there's a little of that a touch of that like CW feel. Yeah. In retrospect, but at the time that was not really the thing. I mean, the other movies that year were, you know, Freddy versus Jason, which mm-hmm. is obviously big fun kind of stuff. Um, that's when we were like just starting the uh, the Japanese horror remake thing with oh, the yeah. and the Grudge and stuff like so. It was like that era. So like in retrospect, it feels a little more like you know the, the more CWE kind of horrors that would come later. But at that time, you know, yeah, that was that was great, and it <laughs> so, did great, right? Like box office yeah, was yeah, like a smash. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, which it's is the only, it's like the only successful Chainsaw movie since the first. One. Which is the this is where it gets confounding to me because like with that movie, and I remember you know enjoying it. Like it, it wasn't yeah, totally my good. bag, but it's I really good. But yeah, it was really well done. But I, I look at that, and I go, you rebooted this successfully. You made a film that you know has action and, and drama, and then you start going origins. You start going backwards, and it's like you know yeah. this is a movie where if if it does well at the box office, you keep going forward. You know, you keep yeah. making sequels and <laughs> and and push a story forward. You don't quickly. Start and and this is really when we start from. There's going to be quite a lot of origin type stuff after. Well, a couple. At least. Oh yeah. Uh, but I don't. I don't know. The second one. What did you think about TCM? The beginning. So I am not even sure I have ever seen this one. <laughs> I, I watched the trailer again today, and either I have completely forgotten it since 2006. Um, cause I feel like I would have had to have seen it cause I was working at Fango by this time. So I feel like I definitely would have seen it. Um, but watching the trailer today, I have no recollection of it. And it feels very similar to the first in terms of look and style, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's all the, all the bad guy characters came back mm. and you know, the same actor. So as far as like continuity goes, the beginning and then the 2003 is the closest this series ever got to being a normal series. <laughs> like, there's no question that one follows the other, you know I mean? It's a prequel. So, but if you watch them in reverse order that they came out, it's like, okay, this directly leads into the other one. All right. Like I don't have any questions in between. Um, but uh, I, I don't, a lot of people really, this one tends to be like near the bottom of people's rankings. I don't think it's that bad of a movie. It's, mm-hmm. It's not as good as their first one, um, but it is uh, – the reason you might not remember it, it's, it's very fast-paced. It's very short, very fast-paced. A lot of it takes place during the day. It's it's not real time, but it's it's a pretty brief period that it takes place over. Uh, it, it, these four kids are driving to Mexico or something because they're going to dodge the draft. 
Mm. Um, nope, and, don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, they run up. They run afoul of the group. Um, the, the weird thing about this one is that it's an origin for everything. About it's not just the origin for Leatherface; it's the origin for Arlie Ermey's character and, and Monty, the guy with no legs. And every single thing that we know about these people apparently happened in one incident. Mm. So, like, Monty loses his legs, Holt loses his teeth, Holt becomes sheriff, uh, Leatherface gets his chainsaw, they actually start eating people, even though that wasn't really an element in their 2003 one. Mm -hmm. They, they injured, like, they bring up, like, Holt, like, floats the idea of cannibalism Mm. to the others. Uh, what's the other thing? There's something else. Like, all of this happened in one day. It's, it reminds me of, like, the opening of Last Crusade, where we find out that Indy's like fear of snakes, his hat and his whip all happened in one like one event. adventure with that and guy. the dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like, wow, like that was an eventful day for this family. My yeah. God, uh, but I don't think it's that bad of a movie. And it's it. it I appreciated that it ends with spoiler um, <laughs> the heroine getting killed because obviously it's a prequel. So it's like, all right, if she had gotten away, well, how is anything else happening? So the only logical way to get around that is to kill her, which like at the end of a studio horror movie, the heroine dying is not something you see, uh, whether it makes logical sense or not. Uh, they always let her live. And this mm-hmm. time it didn't. And then it ends with a John Larroquette narration, which I thought oh. was kind of fun being a prequel. Like, Oh yeah. At the end it comes in. <laughs> so I thought that was cool. Um, it, Basically, it's it's not a super great movie, but the last like thirty seconds are good. Like, really, kind of buys a little more goodwill. I love that um, you just gave it a plug for the last thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you you watch it, and it's just like, hey, whatever. The last thirty seconds, like, oh wow, cool. All right. Actually, really I almost leave, felt like, that just... way about one of the last ones. We'll talk about in a second. I felt like <laughs> one of the final shots almost made up for. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, let's let's move to the best of the franchise. Uh, this is the <laughs> one because we love Diodata here. Who doesn't love Diodata? <laughs> uh, but this one's weird because. Okay, so you had those two, but then this is like what? Uh, this is like oh, like oh, up to three D, right? yeah, three yeah. so D, eight years later, but it's a direct sequel later. to the original. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this one is the one that I just rewatched, and I have to say, when this came out in 2013, I remember being like, "What the fuck is this shit?" Yeah. I rewatched it. I actually had fun. No, it's, with it's surprisingly it. a little bit fun. Um, I gotta say, like to, and I remember having this like knee jerk, like I don't even know what this is, um, but surprisingly watchable um this round and i actually like how they play leatherface how he's he's the villain but kind of not by the Mm -hmm. end and it's an interesting take more so than i've seen with some of the other ones um this one is uh 2013's texas chainsaw 3d which i didn't see in 3d and i really wish i had Uh, because i saw this on video like after like a couple years Uh, okay so did you see it in 3d in the theater i did okay walk us through press screening was in 3d yeah (laughs) And if you, uh, one of the commentaries are making, you know, they actually point out that Lionsgate insisted on a certain number of kind of coming at you shots mm. uh, that they had to have in the movie, I guess, you know, for the trailer or whatever to sell it, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. Like it never dawned on me, but it kind of makes sense. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like if you, you're going to shoot a movie in 3D, you got to need a few moments to like make it clear that it's 3D, yeah. even mm-hmm. though most of the time it's just like, oh, the depth in the shot is really great. And, you know, that's the sort of stuff filmmakers tend to actually care about. But it's like no, like please throw the chainsaw at the camera every now and then, yeah. so we can so we can sell the 3D tickets. Um, it's it's a weird movie for me in that kind of like four, and that I'd probably like it more if it wasn't branded a Texas Chainsaw movie, mm. because to me a big thing of what has always made Texas Chainsaw 
a little more interesting and stand out from the other big franchises is that it is a family thing. Mm -hmm. And in this one, after the opening scene, which takes place the next day after the first one, so you get like the whole Sawyer clan like hold up together talking about what they're going to do about about Leatherface and you know the cops coming to arrest them or do whatever for killing uh you know Franklin and the others. Um after that Leatherface is on his own for the whole movie and then he's just he's just kind of like a generic you know mute masked killer kind of thing again. So you kind of lose that element of what makes it stand out from the others and it's just another slasher and it's not not the worst i've certainly seen worse films in that you know that body count mode but um because you're constantly being reminded of its connection to chainsaw mm-hmm. it like it's it, it feels like it's co- sort of kept at a distance for me like i can't get into it for what it's actually doing because every five minutes they're like oh, i remember in 19 august 1970 like like at one point they go to the, the house and they, the 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 gate code is 081373 or whatever the hell it is, like yeah. the date. And they would say like, oh, that's the date. Like, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> stop. And, well, like, you have nothing to do with that movie. Like, you and, say you're the direct sequel and you're the least like it of all the movies. And the distance of time also seemed problematic because we would have had yeah. to, and I did the math last night, but it was uh, something like Leatherface would have had to be like 12 in the first one. Yeah. Um, and Daddario is the hottest 40-year-old woman I've ever seen in my life. Right? Wow. She, she, she is awesome in this movie, but yeah, she would have to be like 40 to make the timeline work. Yeah. Well, that's they the other just thing. They don't, what they do is they kept trying to hide what year the first one took place Mm -hmm. because what happened was i don't know if this is i forget how i've learned this along the way i hope i'm not talking out of school but basically the iphone scene which is actually a pretty good scene Mm -hmm. was not originally there and somebody really wanted that scene in the movie and because of that they couldn't say it took place in 1994 or whatever it was supposed to actually take place and if you know because if you notice in the movie nobody has a cell phone you know, the, the kids, like, she works at, like, a grocery store. Like, everything is just very non-specific. And apart from, like, a couple of, you know, maybe, like, a modern car or whatever in the background, you could easily set that movie in 1993, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the time would make sense. Dario is supposed to be a college-age-ish kind of girl. Um, but they wanted that iPhone scene in there, which obviously meant it had to take place in 2010, 2012, whatever. So... To try to like fix that, they fudge out the 1973 date as often as possible. And you could see, like, when the part where she's looking at the police reports, you have newspapers that just say August 18th. You <laughs> notice, like, a smudge, or like, there's a tombstone, and there'll be like weeds covering, like, it'll say 19, and then it'll just like, there'll be some weeds or flowers covering the other two years. And I'm like, I feel like hey. the. Like, we know what year the first movie took place. So, like, you're trying to, like, pretend that maybe the first film's events happened in 1993-ish, <laughs> just so you can have 20-year-old Ali Dada. You kind of lose your Vietnam the, thread if you yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, this, like... <laughs> this is why so it follows. It's just one of those movies right. that, like, makes you... Yeah. It makes it hard to like. There is stuff to like, but it's constantly, like, shooting itself in its foot. You need the like seashell reader, baby. Uh, that, the seashell. I think if you do seashell finishing. reader, you're always fine. It's, it's- and then when everybody asks you what's up with that, you're like, it exists in a timeless yeah. realm. And boom! 
Come on, questions answered. I mean, she's reading Dostoevsky. It's timeless. Yeah. Come on. It follows knows what's up. We're in another time when kids read Dostoevsky. Uh, time. But, oh, so. So All right. Okay, so then we go into 2017. Wait, we didn't, we didn't talk about the best part of the oh. yeah. Do yeah. Do you think, cuz? I mean, that's where the movie like wins pretty much whatever credit's yeah. got. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, I can't wait for them to follow through on that with like, Ali Dada is this like vengeful woman, like using Leatherface as her like guard dog to get yeah, back she, at all the people that wronged her. Yeah, she becomes like maybe his she keeper. can finally now get revenge on her boyfriend who's cheating on her with her best friend, which is information her character never knows. She's in her forties. She's got a- not yeah, in yeah. the final cut. I'm sure it existed somewhere where she discovered that. But yeah, but this one um, and the next one are weird because there's one other thing we didn't talk about about this, which is. Of all things, this franchise doesn't need its twists. <laughs> like, like of all the franchises, like the idea that you'd build your story around a twist, and that one has a major twist about you know her realizing she's really. And the next one's a, an entire film based around a whodunit. And I watched yeah. this thing for the first time last night. It's the only one I hadn't seen. Leatherface, oh, okay. twenty seventeen. Yeah, uh, by two directors I really like. I mean, they're hit and miss, but they've made you know, Livid's finally going to be a film people can mm-hmm. see on Shutter now, and Inside's just you know one of the best of the last you know ten or fifteen years. Uh, they made Candisha, which we both really liked um, last year. Deep House, Deep House which is, is interesting, but it's, but it's interesting, yeah. But and and there's this has moments like there's a couple of brutal moments that I actually thought were pretty cool, and I thought the ending was pretty cool. Uh, but but also it's just what I hated. It's one of those movies. Like afterwards, I gave it one and a half star. It wasn't because it's not competent. It's because I hated everything about the idea of the movie. Like I, I, as I was watching, I was like, oh, I don't want this to be a movie. Like this this as a story. Like who was <laughs> yeah, which of these kids could have been Leatherface? You know? Yeah, and it's like. Uh. It, you know right away which one it is because they try so hard to make him not seem that way. Yeah, right. So they have like the the overly psycho guy, mm-hmm. a girl, obviously it's not going to be her, and then this like hulking brute dude. Yeah. And then the the fourth of the group is this like kind of normal handsome dude. It's like, mm, wow, I wonder sh- I'm shocked that he turned out to be Leatherface. Wow. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would this be a movie? And, you know, the thing about a prequel normally is that you're filling in information and with characters that you know and love in some way and preferably mm-hmm. played by the same actors. And this is a prequel where the series that you're not even, I mean, when I first saw it, I could not remember what movie I couldn't. It, I was like, is this a prequel again to the platinum dunes one? Because his name's Jedediah and there's a Jedediah. Oh, in the yeah. oh dunes shit. One. And then I was like, wait, which, which one am I prequeling? And, uh, you know, none of the actors are involved. None of the filmmakers are obviously involved. Well, Toby and Kim got their usual, you know, executive producer credit that didn't need anything. But and it's just like, you know, like if you're talking about a prequel, I mean, no one loves Phantom Menace, but it's like I understand where this fits and why this is filling in information. I don't know these people enough to care. I mean, this stuff in that in Leatherface, like, did you know that Steven Dorff's character is the grandfather of the sheriff guy in 3D. Totally. Why? Totally. Why else would I watch it? That's why I tuned it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but like, I will say the best like, casting. I saw these movies three times before I made that connection. Like, <laughs> this isn't interesting. No one cares enough about these people. But they do a great, uh, the one piece of casting that's just like perfect, and then she's wasted yeah. is Lily Taylor oh, yeah, as Lily the Taylor. mom, because especially when yeah. you go back to three and you go, okay, Gulag is mom. They look alike. She yeah. totally mm-hmm. could have grown into being her. Actually, and she's yeah. fierce. Like, she's such a great actress that I believe. Her, but the storyline doesn't do her any favors because her kids get taken away from her when they're young. They're all put into like a foster mental ward 
and yeah. then we have to and then there's a big breakout we have to figure out who who, who it is they're on the lamb and then steven dorf uh one of his kids died as a result of uh yeah. that family and he's after them and that's about it you know yeah he's doing this like bill forsyth and thousand corpses kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. um or devil's rejects whatever one he was yeah devil's rejects um you know uh so it's like you kind of you're you're starting to get a little sympathy for the family, which is weird. Um, Lily Taylor is uh, uh, one thing we didn't mention about 3d is that uh, it brings back cast members as different characters. Mm. So we have Gunnar Hansen as finally the one movie mm-hmm. that brought back Gunnar Hansen yeah. as like what I guess would be Leatherface's uncle. Mm. Uh, and we have Bill Mosley filling in Jim Sato's role, which I actually thought worked pretty well. Yeah. He was good um, in it. I liked really good, him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then you also have Marilyn Burns also coming back. Well, I mean, apart from her weird cameo in four, but she's not playing Sally; she's playing Leatherface's mother. And it's like you bring back your heroine to play the mother of the guy that tried to kill her. Okay, and then uh, the this didn't dawn on me until I just rewatched them all. Lily Taylor's character is that character, so yeah. Lily Taylor grows up to be Sally Hardesty's. <laughs> oh, weird. Wait, what? Grows up to be Mar- well, grows up to be Marilyn Burns. Oh, weird. As, as okay, Verna Sawyer or whatever. Wow, yeah. that got complicated. That really did. Right? And it's just like it you, hurt you a make little. these connections that make it worse. Like just, just don't do that because <laughs> it just makes it confusing. But the only way to simplify a franchise is to hire Terrence Malick to do the new one. So I am just stoked yeah. that we finally yeah. get a poster that paid it off. I know we all yeah, made yeah. fun of that for about two weeks. I'm hoping we're oh, oh, the poppy. The poppy. It, it is a very weird yeah, picture yeah. when it's. A Chainsaw Master movie. It, it looks yeah. like an art house, like you know. You know a, uh, there's a Twitter thread. It's probably my favorite thing on Twitter right now because everybody else is just yelling at each other all the time. There's a guy who just every day he photoshops a different character into the poppy fields <laughs> with <good>. Leatherface. <laughs> so it's Leatherface in the middle where he popped up in the trailer, but like Shrek's in there, Brahms <laughs> from the boy, and uh, I think Jar Jar. So it's like all like awful kind of characters. But I'm like, oh, this is this is good content. What I do like about the trailer, and granted, this is saying nothing about the movie because obviously trailers, you know, say nothing about the movie most of the time. Um, But I do like that it has kind of a more Midwestern feel because that feels like a return. Like the Texas, the rural farming element felt like they'd been lost for a while. Um, Yeah, they don't shoot them in Texas anymore, which is kind of a bummer. And so the fact that this one, it at least has a prairie feel yeah. in the trailer. I was kind of like, you know what? I'll, it's got, it feels Midwestern. Um, and that I kind of just like aesthetically, like I feel was a good way to start it. Um, yeah. Saying nothing about how the movie actually is. I like your aesthetical choices. Um, you think so there could yeah. be legs here for more? Or do you think this is just, again, another restart that will probably be fine, but not launch more films? I really think they should just be done with it. <laughs> like, just, just leave it alone. Like, so, like not every series needs to go on forever. Uh, and when you've already restarted it so many times, you can't even, you know, say what you will about Halloween 2018. When it did its reset, it was firm. And, you know, there are people to this day that will tell you H2O is not erasing mm-hmm. four through six. And it's like, okay, you're, you're wrong, but sure. Go, go along with your little theory. Uh, Leatherface, the Chainsaw series, has done at pretty much every other movie. Yeah. yeah, you know there are there are four direct sequels to the original, so it's like you can't even this new one, which we haven't seen yet. It's already feeling like a retro. It's like, oh, well, we're the direct sequel. Like, well, so was 3D, and that was right. not even ten years ago. Yeah, um, and so 
the only real choice is to completely remake it again, which I mean, they've also already done, but at least it's been what, 18 years. Yeah, 18 years since since that one. So it's like there's been three re- there's been three restarts within the series since then. At least if you go back a little further, you're doing something a little different than we've had for the past, you know, 18 years. Yeah, uh, but our- like, just just leave it alone. It's it's fine. Like you know, or do go full blown and just do you know a woman version of Leatherface. Just do something radically Ooh. different enough where it's not. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just gonna, you know, that Razor work. beat you to it. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, Elric and I have had conversations where some franchises reach this point where you just have to let it go back to being small. Like you have yeah. to say, let's not make it like a $10 million. Let's take it back. Let's let this weird art house director do it and just mm-hmm. completely get artistic with it. And then you get the new Evil Dead yeah. um, or you get the new Hellraiser film, but you have to kind of wipe the slate clean and be willing to go back. It's what I kept hoping they were going to do with like a Friday the 13th where it's just like, let's wipe everything that happened and just yeah. kind of start again um, and see what we can do with it now. But yeah, it's... It, I think a lot of franchise reach reach that point where you get too much. And this one's probably the worst one for it, aside from Hellraiser, where you get so much into the weeds of mythology as yeah. we just did, where continuing on with the mythology just makes it weedier um, well, to, to sort out. And then, you know, I've, I've softened over the years as far as continuity, like Halloween 2018 when it came out and it was like, Oh, we're racing everything. I was like, all right, fine. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I probably been like, fuck you, no, no, but, you know, I don't care as much about that, but, you know, I just want some kind of tonal, I guess, consistency within a series. Like, if I'm going to be excited that a new one is coming, it should be because there's something about everything leading up to that point that has made me want more of that. You know what I mean? Like. Like a new Saw movie. Like if this, if they announced Saw, like a legit Saw eight, I would be like, oh hell yeah, because Saw one through seven were tight, and they, were, you know, there was always this continuing mm-hmm. storyline or whatever. I'm not interested in yet. And now they've done Jigsaw and Spiral, which are like kind of resets, and they're not really related. And they don't, they're not picking up the same story threads. I don't want another one of those. I'm not going to get as excited about that because now I've seen that twice. I would get excited about a Saw eight. Maybe, but even then, it's just like, well, it's been 12 years or whatever since Saw 3D. Like, maybe I moved on from that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a chainsaw, it's like we're getting, they're not, they don't go away for long. The longest gap yeah. was, was between one, and, one two, and two, you know? I mean, and then after that, we've gotten one consistently about every five or six years. And so it's like they never go away for long enough to miss it, but they're not really paying off my you know my devotion for lack of a better word to this series by constantly oh no we're resetting again we're resetting again we're resetting again and it's like you can't even get leatherface to be the same each time yeah so it's like what what is what is a chainsaw what is a texas chainsaw movie it's just the title at this point you know and a and a idea of a character named leatherface yeah um somebody actually on i think it was on the dvd for three commentary or something um they said you know like it's not unlike the way the mad max movies were in that way where it's like a, you know it wasn't like uh you know road warrior wasn't really directly sequel to mad max and it's like a reboot you know, thunderdome yeah. was like you know obviously fury road but it's like well 
we had at least one actor kind of guiding us through right, that, right. And one filmmaker doing all four. And, and they like, totally so, feel yeah, yeah, in the so same like, world. I get that idea and I would be totally with that, but like you guys, it's like every movie's the Halloween three of the franchise, you know, or it's just <laughs> yeah. like you have too many bastard stepchildren. Where are the real children? <laughs> you know? Well, I'm still team uh, Fede, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful at the point of recording yeah. this that it might at least be entertaining. Because uh, I know he's not directing this one, but he, he you know, he mm. has fun with this. Shepherding it. Yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, so we will see that, but I am glad we had you for that breakdown because my God, I would have been lost here. Oh my God. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, that's I definitely <laughs> the one franchise that, that makes my eyes blur that I'm just like, I can't even begin to decipher the way that you have, but let's, <laughs> let's go into kind of deeper cannibals. Cause I have always cannibals are the one subgenre that I never think like, Oh, I love cannibal movies. But then when I started looking at them today, I realized like how many I have seen and how many I kind of pull as like favorites from this. Um, and I also started thinking about how cannibal stories are really kind of some of our oldest stories and really encompass a lot. Like if we stop and think about like vampires, zombies, witches, werewolves, wendigos, like most mythologies in some capacity have a cannibalism angle to it. So it's kind of like our biggest fear as society and has been for a really long time. And the only one that's real, it's a, mm-hmm. it was in fact happening. I remember maybe it was like 20 years ago, somebody I knew was going to sail to Papua New Guinea and they still there were still tales of cannibalism coming out of Papua New Guinea at that time. Not a lot, but it just made me go, oh yeah, weird. Like this is something... That's actually happened in society, you know, it happened when the alive plane went down with the soccer players. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously something out of desperation that can happen, out of being sheltered or isolated that can happen in societies. And so that makes it even more terrifying because it's, you know, it's a reality, whereas vampires, mm-hmm. you know, less so. But except for this is the root, I think you're, what you're saying. Yeah, I think that I, I when I looked back at like all of these different kind of monsters that we've created, like what we consider to be our classic, like werewolf, vampire, zombie, witch, they all have elements of cannibalism that go on with it. Oh, you're a witch, you eat babies um, or chew on children's bones and, you know, zombies and vampires, werewolves, it all feeds on the flesh of men. It's very much like this corruption of civilized society, the abhorrence of what we consider to be civilized society can be summed up in the act of cannibalism somehow also heavily equates into religion but that's a whole different um <laughs> podcast topic and um, sweeney todd i always think of sweeney todd when i think of that yeah. you know, that, that that idea of wanting to get getting off by somebody else eating flesh you know mm-hmm. y- even if they don't realize it it's you know uh it, it is it's i've always been turned off by them like i like these movies yeah. we're talking about but of all the subgenres it's the one i'm i'm least likely to like rush to uh you know because it's it, it's inherently gross Yeah, it's one of those that I find kind of just repulsive to begin with. It's like one of the things, like I will watch forensics files and documentaries on like true crime shit. As soon as it's like, and he consumed his victim's eyeballs, I'm like, I'm not into this as much. Like it just crosses a weird line for me. Um, So yeah, it's one that it's hard to swallow. Hey, look, I did that again, y'all. Yeah. (laughs) But that's why, because it's repulsive, we invited Brian, who's eating chili, corn, uh, hot dogs as we speak, (laughs) live on the show. I'll have you know I had a salad. Okay, impressed. I, I had spaghetti bolognese, so it definitely um, had a good You're sounding like on, old but... man Leatherface, like in the new trailer. <laughs> yeah. 
But um, left that life behind. <laughs> <laughs> I figure we should at least discuss a little bit of the Italian cannibal boom, um, which I, I it was immediately like everything else becomes a cycle. It's always like the torture porn cycle, the zombie cycle, the Italian cannibal boom. Yeah. And I was like, why does it get that cool title? But cool. um, kicked off 1972 with um, Umberto Lenzi's uh, Man from Deep River. What's your fave Italian cannibals, guys? Well, actually, when we get into our list, I think I've got a couple on my list. Oh, um, that's kind of where okay. I, I went with my. We, we each picked a couple cannibal movies. So, I mean, you know, I don't consider the weird thing is I don't consider zombie a cannibal movie because they're zombies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. but I know sometimes it'll appear on lists. I think maybe it's just it. It feels a bit more like that because it's kind of fleshy and we are going to eat you as the tagline. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the Italians d- did it best. I still think Cannibal Holocaust, I mean, without my not being one of my picks because it's so obvious, but Cannibal Holocaust is still the movie. Again, a movie I wouldn't flock to, and it's not like I want to rewatch it. But it's such a, it's such, it's such an effectively disturbing film, and it does that mm-hmm. magic trick so well, especially the first time you see it. And and most of us probably it's built up before we see it as this thing not not built up in terms of being a good movie built up in terms of you will you be able to handle it and, and is it real what you're watching it um oh, yeah and i think so i think on that level that's the one that you know kind of um, sets up what all uh, all the others will kind of be um judged against in some ways or thought about in relation to because it's treating you know the real cannibals in quote marks not not the heightened supernatural or you know uh, the weirder Italian stuff that came mm-hmm. later, which I, I probably like that stuff more. You know what I mean? I like it when it gets weirder. This is a, this is still too grisly for me to want to watch more than you know once every decade or so. Yeah. yeah well, I, re- I rewatched Cannibal Ferox. Huh? Ferro? Fer- how do you pronounce it? Ferox. Uh, and I, I just, think yeah, I just don't enjoy the Mm-mm. this kind of mo- like the the one I the Italian stuff. The one I liked was Cannibal Apocalypse, which uh, was took place in took place in America. I think it was. Mm-hmm. It was technically an Georgia. Italian production, Georgia. Um, it, funnily yeah, enough, it's Georgia, one of my yeah. picks. So let's yeah, yeah. so let's talk about it. Hey, let's yeah. dig in I, on those. I, I only saw this one about. I only saw this one a couple of years ago or a year or so ago, and it's really good. It's uh, yeah. Antonio Margretti. You, you know, made a lot of fun, but it's like a Vietnam. So the, the I don't know if you knew the story. It makes sense though now because John Saxon's the lead in this thing. But do you know how they? Do you know the story about Saxon in this movie? No. So John Saxon uh, got a very poorly translated copy of the script <laughs> and they had no trace of cannibalism in the script it was a post-vietnam ptsd movie that's what he signed up for he was halfway through shooting when he saw a new version of the script and realized he was now in a zombie film and he never saw the film he said he was so mad <laughs> and i watched this movie go but this movie's so kick-ass saxon you gotta yeah. Yeah, that's great but it's yeah <laughs> because it keeps switching gears yeah. it's, it starts off with this thing like oh it's gonna be this kind of movie but then like they wrap that up pretty quick and then it becomes this other thing for a while. And it's like, and that gets wrapped up and it's like, you, every time you think you got a handle on the movie, it changes again. And that's the kind of movie I tend to like where it's like, you know, if you've seen Campbell Holocaust, you've seen Campbell Ferox and vice versa. But mm-hmm. like, this is like, you can't really prepare for what you're going to see. Like the Campbell elements there, but it's, it's very much a different beast. And it's just like, all right, it's keeping me on my toes. It's not bumming me out with animal killing and stuff. I'm just like a real, it sequel. gets lumped in with those yeah. of the other, but it's really not like them at all. No, it's almost like a sequel. Cause it's like starting in the, in the jungle, in this case, it's yeah. Vietnam. And they're going in to, so- to save a couple of their old buddies who are in a pit and they, they kind of get close to their buddies thinking they're saving them. And then they realize their buddies try to take a bite out of them. And they realize their buddies for whatever reason have become cannibals. They still manage to save them. They get back to America 
and those guys are in like a, a psych ward uh, and it's kind of set on and uh, Saxon is having nightmares about that moment and the cannibalism because he was bit. And we start to realize it's actually kind of like a plague. It's a cannibal plague that once you're bit and it starts spreading through the, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's ATL. Yeah, it's Atlanta. And, and it starts spreading. And, and what's, it's what's so cool about the movie is John Saxon's the hero of the movie. And as you're watching the movie, he's by the, it's not even really spoiler. About like halfway through, he basically is starting to realize he's going to become like them. And so he starts becoming like the bad guy. And you're like, yeah. what the fuck am I watching? It's a, it's a pretty dangerous, like kind of messed up city yeah. version of a, of a, one of those classic jungle cannibal movies, which is cool. It's got like siege elements. It's got, you yeah. know, like the, the race against time kind of elements. Like there's a lot of stuff going on where it's not just like, you know, some people go in the jungle and they find the natives and then everybody starts eating each other. Yeah. And it's, no, it's unpleasant. Not. And, you know, a turtle gets its head cut off in the end. You know, like it's, it's, it's not like that at all, but. Because of the title, you know, it's cannibal, then a word, <laughs> you know, it gets, I mean, when I first saw it, I assumed it was going to be like that. I'm like, oh, wow, this is so much better than those. Yeah, they also call it cannibal in the streets, but either even that would still yeah. seem silly. But yeah, but it's yeah. really, it's a really cool little movie. So if somebody's not into those jungle ones, but they want like the essence, but in the city, this is, I'm glad you brought up because so that's, that was a good segue. Cannibal Apocalypse. That's one of mine mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. brought up by Brian. Excellent. Okay, Brian, hit us with one of yours. Well, am I doing my favorites or my obscure one? You do your favorites. Oh, my favorites. Okay, so uh, another one that I uh, that I really love. I just rewatched. Finally, I've been reading to rewatch for a while. Is Raw, oh, yeah. which is uh, Julia. I can't pronounce her name. I'm sorry, Julia Ducarno, uh, mm-hmm. who just did Teton. Um, such a cool movie. Uh, it's it's basically it's like you take any sort of coming of age movie about like you've seen this like. You know, the repressed, like, she was raised Catholic and she was raised in a strict family and goes off to college and mm-hmm. kind of spirals because she's got drugs for the first time. She's got drinking and sex or whatever for the first time. It's like, this is a girl who was raised vegetarian and goes to college, goes to veterinary, veterinary school, and uh, they make her eat meat. They make her eat a raw, I think it's a raw rabbit kidney rabbit, or something. Rabbit, yeah. And it, like, that is what her spiral is and eventually she spirals into cannibalism. Um, and it's just such a, it's got like weird, like moments of black humor. There's a, there's a sight gag in that movie. I think about at least once a week, it's, I, it's a minor spoiler for the movie for those who haven't seen it, but, uh, one character has a habit of biting her fingernails. And at one point in the movie, uh, the main girl of the movie bites that character's finger <laughs> off. <laughs> and, and later, a little bit later, the girl's seen and she goes to, out of instinct, go to bite the fingernail, and she kind of looks like, "Oh yeah, there's no finger here." <laughs> proceeds to bite the one, you know, the same finger on the other hand instead. I'm like, that is That's such funny. a great fucking gag. Um, but it's you know, it's great performances. It, it's original. It's it's you know, it's it's a Campbell movie, but not you'll you'll probably get icked out. Like it's definitely one mm-hmm. of those like it premiered at Sundance and someone fainted kind of yeah. things. But like for hardcore fans, especially if you've seen. You know the ones we were just talking about, the Italian ones. There's nothing in there really that will that will really bug you. Um, the difference is with like modern like, films like that is is you yeah. they ground the character. They spend so long grounding characters that suddenly yeah. they feel real. They feel like you're watching a drama, and then the yeah. icky stuff is much more effective than. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's like yeah. probably almost an hour into the movie, at least 45 minutes into the movie before she's like you know yeah. gets the cannibalism itch. Um, but yeah, it just it just works so well and. Uh, and, you know, Teton did a lot of the same stuff, too. I think mm-hmm. that's just a filmmaker in general who's, like, somebody to watch and, and hopefully will be with us for a long time. 
uh, uh, I don't mean alive, obviously, well, she's alive, but I mean making John. What do you know, Brian? Um, <laughs> yeah. What are you trying to but, say, you know, Brian? Unfortunately, there's only one more left. I, I was convinced they were going to get an Oscar <laughs> nomination for Tite, and I was sure Francis. Seriously? I thought, I thought it was going to be Francis' entry, and it just didn't happen once it got there. Yeah, you thought Pig was going to get uh, one, yeah, I did, too. Yeah. Yeah, so. I hoped mad. Pig did. I was, didn't yeah. think, probably. Yeah. I hope for that one. Um, um, so yeah, that's a, that's probably that would probably be my very. I'm with kind of with Becca, and that it's just not a subgenre I really flock to. I looked mm-hmm. at, I looked at my site, um, our movie day, and all the all the genres are tagged every time I do. You know, it's just like this is a slasher, this is a serial killer, and like Cannibal is definitely one of the least used tags on the site. This is wow. why we picked you. Yeah, <laughs> we, <laughs> we go right yeah. to we the do. person who's like kind of. But I don't. He's I don't an think expert, I you guys. Did not put the label on the chainsaw movies for the most part because they wow. really don't. Yeah. Well, they don't really dive into mm-hmm. it. Like I said, three is the only one that ever really makes it over. It's always very. Two, you find a finger bone in your chili. Oh yeah, that's too. yeah. Too. But again, it's, it's more like it's you compare it to those Italian ones or even raw, where it's like you never see people actually biting other yeah. people, you know, mm-hmm. and like oh, and like blood running down. It's just like yeah. I mean, even the first one, it's like you just have to kind of make that connection for yourself. Yeah. yeah. Um, so for my first one, I'm going to go with not what I consider to be a good film, but I consider it to be a very important and fun film. And that is 1963's Blood Feast from Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, This is just an amazing watch that you have to just as a horror fan across the board. It is so historically important. This is our big transition um, from when we've got these kind of squeaky clean horrors of the 1950s where everything's very gothic and kind of sanitized. And Herschel Gordon Lewis comes along And not only is he not concerned about getting an MPAA rating, but he's like, fuck it. Why do we even need one? And I think he clipped one from a different movie and put it at the top (laughs) of the film so he could still sell it at drive-ins. It was just this like fucking guerrilla tactics to get the movie made. And it was the same thing where he was very much like, well, who's going to tell me not to do this horrific stuff? It was made on a shoestring budget in um, Florida, like most of Herschel Borden Lewis's movies. But it is this kind of Grand Gignol aesthetic where there is a loose plot, I guess, <laughs> actors. Um, Connie Mason's in it. She was a Playboy playmate. Um, but it's all kind of structured together around these Grand Gignolish set pieces that um, Herschel Borden Lewis becomes known for. The setup is that they are, there is a blood feast that is being prepared by this guy who has amazing eyebrows named Fuad Ramses, who's a caterer. And it's being prepared to bring the, the goddess Ishtar back, I think. I, I, I think Quisicoxum might be in there somewhere. I don't know um, my full blood feast mythology. But anyway, he's, he's like killing people and preparing them as a feast. Um, and so that's the majority of the sequences are somebody is killed brutally or sawed in half. And then you see him putting this leg into this oven with all of this like um, <laughs> fog rolling out of it. And then he pulls out a now spray painted brown version of the same leg and pretends to take a bite of it. Um, there are scenes where my, one of my favorite scenes is there's a cop who's supposed to make a phone call to, I guess, his other cops about Fuad Ramsey. And he's sitting in front of a table with like a naked female prepared on it. And everything else around her is cooked, but she's like naked and still raw, just a corpse. Um, but beautifully prepared with lots of garnish. So, but this is, this for me is such classic cannibal film and um, you can really get 
um, it, it feels like the gross out type cannibal movies that we know are coming like 10 years down the line. This is what is going to usher in the gross out cannibal films to come. Mine's an in-betweener too, actually. It's because it's like, just like yours, it's uh, an, a transition movie, but it's actually one of my favorite movies, period. And it's not gory at all, which is uh, Jack Hill's Spider Baby. I love Spider Baby and I love how it's literally like, oh, this is like a universal style film in some ways, and it even has Lon Chaney Jr., but it's then taking us into something that's weirder, more perverse, more 60s, late 60s filmmaking. Uh, this is like a fan, kind of, and definitely has shades of t- Texas Chainsaw too, because it's a, you know, a, a kind of a sheltered family. There's mm-hmm. a kind of a, des- a degenerate disease. I think they start aging backwards-ish mentally at the age of 10. And, uh, you know, you get Sid Haig playing basically like a big man child. Uh, Jill Banner is really good as, as the little girl catching people in her spider web. Uh, and you've got a, and you've got the greedy family who are coming to try to kick, get them kicked out of their own home. And, and, you know, of, of course, it's going to culminate in a big dinner scene. But the, the cannibalism, you know, the other title is Cannibal Orgy, you know, or the maddest story ever told. But um, I just think it's a really fun and, and it's a fun way to do a cannibal movie. It never feels overly serious or gross out, but you get a sense of the subtext the whole way of what's why they're like this and what the curse probably really is because of what they've been eating. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's what's implied, I'd say. But it's it's a really cool movie. And I still feel like sometimes people haven't seen this they've seen the poster and you know um it's 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 a good a classic i think it's really well shot too yeah. like i always yeah. like the the aesthetical style of this one like it's got really cool jack hill's a really good director he, you mm-hmm. know made a few really yeah. good movies so that's yeah. spider baby you got another one brian um no one i really love uh this kind of gets more into Closer to a lot of the ones I, I noticed that like, as I was making like a list of the ones, almost all the ones I really like are not popular, <laughs> not, <laughs> and not you know like movies that everybody's seen. But um, we are what we are, oh, yeah. which is from uh, Jim Mickle. Uh, it's a remake, and I actually like his better. Um, but he didn't. He he flipped the script. So in the original, with the original, it weirdly uh, takes place in the Chronos universe. Really? With there's the a, vampires? There's a, there's a character that's in both movies. Mm. Um, wow, I did yeah. not I fucking that. Yeah, catch that. Yeah. Um, but in the in the first one, so it's a family of cannibals, the patriarch dies early on, and now the sons are like, you know, they're trying to fill in for their dad and, you know, be the breadwinners, quote unquote, uh, you know, bring the, the victims, and they're just terrible at it. Um, and so it's 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 got a, a dark kind of commie element to it. Uh, Mickle's remake, um, English language, obviously, uh, it's the reverse. So now the mother dies early, and that's right. He's got it's two daughters who are not quite really into the whole thing, and you know, and they don't even really spell out that it's cannibalism for a mm-hmm. while. Uh, but they they're talking about this feast that they do, and they have to fast beforehand, and it's just like this, like kind of sad, like moody. Um, you know, upstate New York, it's, you know, Larry Fessenden shows up. It's got that, you know, that, that the New York vibe. Um, it's like when Fessenden shows up, it's almost like the, the seal of quality, you know, yeah. the, the stamp of approval. It's like, ah, oh, that kind of movie. Yes, got it. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, it's got this great score. I think uh, Jeff Grace did a score and um, Wyatt Russell's in it. It's like one of the first movies he was in. It's like, oh, this guy's good. Like, who's he? And then you find out who he is. Like, oh, shit. That's that's Perth boy. Yeah, uh, Michael Parks is in it. It's probably one of the last really great roles Michael Parks yeah, gets to really play. Good. 
Um, he's the uh, the town doctor who starts suspecting something's going on. Um, it's a slow burn for sure. It's you know it's not going to be for everybody, but it's, you know I watched it again the other night. I'm like, yeah, fucking holds up, man. I really dig this movie. Nice. Um, and uh, the main girl uh, is um, Julia Garner, who's uh, Ozark. big on uh, Ozark. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's so great. If you're a fan of her and or, you know from Ozark and stuff. This is probably one of her first. You know, yeah, at least one of her first starring roles. I remember really liking both versions of this, and they yeah. came out yeah. fairly quickly. It was yeah, like it was only a couple of years like a later, two years apart yeah. from the but Mexican it wasn't, one. You know, and at first I was like, oh, like they're just doing it in English. But like, I really like it. It's just like I'm going to reverse the sex of every character mm-hmm. and see how that changes everything from there. Like this, that one little switch and a major and visual. Like, you, can, you can watch yeah. them back to back and probably you know not get too much like deja vu. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the plots go in completely different areas after that. Um, well, I'm going to go with one of our more standard cannibal movies, I'll call it. Um, classic 1980s. Let's go some Motel Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is just a fun film of my childhood. And when I think back about cannibals, um, this one seemed really accessible and fun to me. Whereas a lot of them, like the Italian stuff, I would have never have dreamed of watching um, in repeat because it is so brutal. But Motel Hell, because it's a comedy, Um yeah, this one I, I definitely watched quite a bit. You know they're cannibals from frame one. There's yeah, no yeah. question about it. It's very much like, come on in, kids. We'll have you for dinner. Yeah, and yeah. then they're like, you know, selling Ben-flavored jerky in the next scene. Like, it just <laughs> is so, you know, overt what they're doing to the point where, like, you know, they have the whole garden set up <laughs> with the hippies <laughs> and the music. And it's just so over the top. But there is just something so fun about this movie. I know that they've been trying to remake it forever. Mm. Um, and it's one of those that I would love to see what somebody does with it now. But I would also love to see how they handle it because it feels very much like a product of the 1980s. Oh, yeah. yeah, and because we've seen so much cannibal stuff. Yeah, I, and I also, mm. and then, and it's not much of it's scary, but the first time you see it, you do really get surprised by the pig mask with the mm. uh, chainsaw kind of, that whole scene yeah. is a little quite upsetting and, just strange yeah um okay my last of these ones is 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 like really a kid's movie it skews a little younger anthropophagus uh it doesn't skew younger than that because that's on my list too. oh yeah because they eat a fetus so excuse yeah. me uh look some people call the slow burn and boring but i gotta say the first time i, I put this thing on i was like First, I kind of enjoyed it. It was kind of like watching a weird Antonioni movie set in Greece. It's like nothing happens. People walk around Greece and then suddenly George Eastman comes out. He's like 10 feet tall. He's like ripping fetuses out, eating them raw. I mean, it's it's a utterly – once he come, enters this movie, it, it the last like 30 yeah. minutes – are really like about as good as a cannibal movie can yeah. be. It's like that's what I call. It's like it's literally like a Greek travel log, yeah. and mm-hmm. then a cannibal shows up in the last thirty minutes. It's and if, if memory serves, he crawls out of the ocean at the beginning. There's an ocean um, scene, but he also comes out through like a well thing at the end, and there, mm-hmm. and he jumps out of a bar- there's a barrel scene where it's, he pops out of a barrel that's really frightening. I, I just think this is a really cool. But it is funny. It's a real mixed one. It's obviously a video nasty, uh, mm-hmm. one of the yeah. major video nasties. And, and for it's still actually shocking. Like when you watch it now, when you see what he does, I think it was like a rabbit or something. Like it was a skinned yeah. rabbit, what they actually yeah. use. But it's still upsetting, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know. I had and- such a wrong read on that movie for so long because I saw it at the New Bev. 
and fell asleep through the entire middle. <laughs> and so all I saw was the, the opening, which is pretty great, and the last half hour, which is great. And I was like, wow, that was fantastic. What a fun, like, fast-paced movie. The it's edit. Like, it's these a Collins edit. These people come Aww. to the island and they just get eaten so much. <laughs> and boom, boom, boom. And then I watched the whole thing. Like, why is this movie's boring? I yeah, there's, boring. there's a lot of dry stuff in the middle. and But I do love some of the middle stuff because it yeah. goes in a slightly different direction because um, George Eastman's character bites somebody yeah. And then doesn't he get infected and like have to go to the mainland and then he attacks somebody? Like it could be. I don't remember that part. But yeah, there's like a Wendigo side to it where he's been bitten by this guy and some. I remember there being some type of infection that they have to head to the mainland to get treated. Um, So I I remember that infection, but that does happen in the very dry, very long second (laughs) act. Um, Very little happens. Like you watch it, you put it on, you're like, wow, that's great. You guys all chat for a while, and then eventually the movie will, yeah. will draw your attention back. <laughs> it had a good score. I remember the score being really cool. Yeah, it does. And um, yeah, for Joe D'Amato, his yeah. films are always, they're a little hit or miss. They're a little kind of, you know, sexy, horror, neither yeah. sexy nor horror, but somehow both. Um, but yeah, this one is it's remarkably watchable for the last 30 minutes. And I've never seen the second one. I've got it sitting on my shelf, Absurd. Oh, Absurd's great. Okay. Absurd is a uh, Halloween rip. Oh, okay. But, it, but is he yeah. playing the same character? Is he still Still the anthropologist? <laughs> oh, okay. Wait, but I invited you on the show to talk continuity, all continuity, all cinematic continuity. Come it's on. Texas Chainsaw is- style cat- continuity. He's also the Grim Reaper. Yeah, yeah, so. AK the Grim Reaper. But I, I do love that character. And George Eastman, if you watch him in other Italian films, it's, he's like often usually Mr. Handsome, studly, uh-huh. good looking yeah. guy. So it's so weird to see him as this grotesque. Didn't like, he write this one? He might have. I feel like he was a writer on this one. Like this was, he was, he was more than just an actor in this. I'm relatively sure. Um, But yeah, that was mine as well. So yeah. Shared some love. Yeah. Brian, what you Uh, got? uh, I'm glad no one else had it yet. Ravenous. Yeah, I absolutely love Ravenous. Yeah. No, not a fan. Oh no, we both love I it. Love it. it oh, oh gosh, okay, yeah. I thought you were shaking your head. No, that came out. Uh, but I, to be honest, I didn't. When I saw it in the theaters, I, I found it weird. Like I didn't fully get it when I first saw it, and then I it was mismarketed. Yeah. So I bet a lot of people had a wrong first impression yeah. of it because it is definitely sold as more of like an adventure, yeah, comedy almost. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it is kind of a comedy, but not the kind of comedy that the. You know, they're, they're, they're really pimping up, like, David Arquette is like the wacky guy. Right after Scream. Like, yeah. You know, this is after Scream 1 and 2, so obviously he was kind of a draw. Um, I remember seeing it on probably HBO, I want to say, like, 97, 98, watching it on television and being really confused by the historical setting. And this speaks to American schools, but, like, being yeah. very <laughs> confused what war they're fighting in, that there was snow, and why are they on the West Coast for this war? I don't remember this war. Um, but yeah, then, then actually seeing it and being like, okay, there's history and it's a great film. No, it's great. I mean, that score is amazing. Yeah. It's like, it, you know, we, some, you mentioned the Wendigo earlier. It's got the Wendigo legend, mm-hmm. which is always good. Um, great cast, you know, uh, guy, you know, I've always liked that Guy Pierce had no, seemingly had no interest in like being an A-list no. leading yeah. man kind of guy. Totally. Like, he, like after LA Confidential, he seemingly went out of his way to take roles that like would ensure he was never a box office draw, which I love. Um, Robert Carlyle's kind of playing two characters almost. Um, yeah, uh, still not as psychotic uh, as his character in Train Spotting somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Big B is still, uh, still Neil worked. Neil McDonough. Neil McDonough, yeah. one of his early roles. And, you know, it's just like, it kills the whole cast off like halfway through. And then you're like, well, what the fuck is this movie going to be? Like, is the whole movie, the rest of the movie going to be him chasing uh, 
Robert Carlyle, and they just like have this a bear trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just such a it's just such a fun like strange movie, mm-hmm. and I just like I love that this was a, a thirty you know whatever million dollar movie from Fox with like you know kind of pretty decent cast yeah. you know mm-hmm. for that era. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I rewatched it the other day. The the, the Blu Ray isn't great. It's, I mean, it's got extras and stuff like that. It's the transfer itself isn't great. So I hope that's not turning people off because I'm sure the reviews weren't kind when it came out. You know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Blu-ray sites are usually like, if the quality is not good, that, that's going to lower the whole score. And it's just like kind of an obscure movie. So people are like, oh, this disc, you know, they gave it a C and they're, they're talking about video quality, but they're, you know, somebody's going to just look at the C and think they're talking about the movie. Mm. Mm. Uh, so maybe it'll get like a 4K or some kind of remaster. I'm not yeah. sure if it's on any of the, the streaming sites, but it's just such a, it feels like an obscure movie, even though it was, again, it was like a, you know, a big, relatively big budget, stu- you know, Fox movie. Feels like yeah. a growing cult movie for sure. Like yeah, a true yeah. cult movie. And I feel like there's a handful that are really picking up speed. That feels like one of them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, before we jump into our deep cuts, I have to give love to a book just because it oh. affected me deeply. Um, I, for my summer reading program in 10th grade, where like, we just had to like pick random books and write about them. I read Offspring by Jack oh, Ketchum because right. <laughs> there was no, like, they didn't control what you read. And so my mom would just take me to the library and be like, pick out what you're going to read. And I read Offspring by Jack Ketchum. It was the summer between 10th and 11th grade. And oh shit, that book fucked me up so bad. Um, and I mean, the, the various movies that they've done and the sequels and everything, obviously um, still going with it. The woman is kind of spurning out of that as well. But there is um, the original book. Holy shit. I was just not prepared for that in book form. Like I'd been reading Stephen King and there was nothing like that. And then, you know, seeing kind of how far Jack Kesham pushes it to the point of just revulsion. Like I'd never had a book that made me want to mm-hmm. vomit before, before the offspring. Um, so yeah, just a really tight one. I I only saw the film much later. They also, which I you know I much preferred the woman. Obviously, it's much more, mm-hmm. it, it's much more of a vision, a satire, and yeah. of family and stuff. But the but it's still even the first Offspring movie was still pretty disturbing. You know, yeah. um, but Ketchum is at that age. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't the and, Offspring? Wasn't well, one of those like After Dark? Or I think or, it was. Yeah. Know, like eight films to die for. Yeah. Or well, those, and or, like, I don't like, think it was underground or something. Yeah, and it was. It was one of, I think it was one of the eight films to die for. I think it was. And I can't remember which one it was that I actually read, if it was Offspring or Off Season. Um, Because I think it was Off Season, I want to say. I know that they're both two Jack Ketchum novels, and I think that Offspring is the sequel to Off Season. Um, But yeah, and then it became the Offspring movie and then the woman out of that. Okay. So, but yeah, when you're talking cannibals, that's just like some heavy, heavy, brutal shit. And it's, it's, you know, kind of the Hills Have Eyes setup of like cave people, clans, you know, eating unwary passengers. But yeah, it goes places that my 10th grade mind was not ready for. Uh, only in a conversation between the three of us could uh, Anthropopagus and uh, Cannibal Apocalypse not be in the deep cut section of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> let's, go, let's go more obscure than Anthropopagus Yes, we're going more. Let's do this. Uh, um, so I'll kick off sure, the first yeah, deep cut. 
I'm going to kick off with 1972's Deathline. Oh, yeah. I That's love this movie. movie so much. Gary Sherman starring Donald Pleasance um, for a hot minute. Um, it is about deaths that are happening in the London tunnel system. And uh, you specifically follow around these kind of um, very hip couple, swinging couple, um, very Austin Powers swinging yeah. couple. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're very groovy. She is specifically groovy. Um, as to what's going happen happening, all these people disappearing, and uh, then you also get this history of like how the tunnels were built and who dug them, and there were cave-ins and people were trapped. And it's interesting because it gives like this kind of feels very historical flavor, but it's doing it in this very kind of swing in 70s subway system London way. Um, I love this one so much. Mind the gap. It almost feels believable that one because because of yeah. the underground kind of world, yeah. um, and also got really funny dinner scenes like at home scenes that it juxtaposes yeah. throughout the film that I think work well. Um, if you take the train from there, you can get to mine. Um, this is just one I saw only for the first time about a year ago or something, and have just fallen in love because it's again dark humor, dark red humor in some ways. Uh, that is a French film called Night of Death from mm-hmm. 1980. Yeah, Raphael Delpar. But this was just a really fun one to discover. You get a, a young a young girl struggling to. Uh, get a job in Paris so she goes uh, further out uh, to this uh, retirement home where they've just suddenly lost the person who had her job and she meets all these like really quirky they feel like characters out of the original Chainsaw Massacre it's like just quirky French older people each one has a personality unique of their own and she starts to get to know them and gets along with them well and then she starts having she starts seeing things that don't add up to why the last girl kind of left so suddenly and she you start to realize that they are there's uh you know, dark witchcraft worship uh cannibalism and stuff to keep these people uh from dying like it's kind of almost got get out vibes as it goes mm-hmm. but it has some pretty graphic gory scenes of what they're actually these old people are doing in this place and she's a really good lead i really liked like just the way she navigates this movie and it feels like one that will probably pick up steam as it becomes easier for people to see like you know i just kind of randomly came across the cover once but i feel like this is one i think people would get a kick out of mm-hmm. have you seen this one bro yeah i had a, my, my, I had a bunch of obscure ones just okay because, good, good. like i don't know how long we were gonna go on obscure stuff yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah no that was one of those ones that like you know uh, for those listening that don't know who i am that's fine uh, <laughs> i used to do this site called horror movie a day and every day i would watch a horror movie and I would never know what I was getting in the early days of it. And eventually kind of streaming kind of took out a lot of the guesswork. But um, at first when it was just DVD rentals from Blockbuster and Netflix back before streaming, uh, I would just load my queue up with every horror title. They would be like, oh, if you like this, you know, you'd like these. And I'd just keep adding all of them, anything I hadn't seen. So I would get stuff and have no idea what it was. Huh. And I'd just be like, all right, that's today's movie. Sure. Okay, throw it in. And that was one of those, like, I have no idea what this is. I'm just going to watch it. And it's just such a great little surprise. Yeah, it's a really good gem. And, and I mean, honestly, from the day I watched it and reviewed it till now, I'm not sure if I've ever heard anybody else talking about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and it has a good yeah, cover, too. Like, Yeah, I mean, I hopefully hopefully Severin or one of them, you know, Vinegar or somebody can can get it out there. It's got a release, doesn't it? I don't know if it's got an American. If it does, maybe it's Mondo Macabre, but I don't know. Uh, okay. I don't know if it does here because it feels like a Severin title for sure, but I don't. Yeah, yeah. I know they didn't put it out. Yeah. It needs it needs the little limelight, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people would dig it. It's just so 
obscure even by the standards of what we're talking about. Yeah, and has a good sense of humor, which is yeah. always cool. For I think for cannibal nope. films, it needs it. I don't think it has a release. Never mind. Take that back. I think that you must have sent me a link because I know I've seen it within the last couple of years. But yeah, yeah, when I, I found it, that's how it. I saw it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it might have been a foreign DVD or something, you know? Yeah. What's uh? Okay. Was oh yeah? Last last deep. One. Yeah, hit us with a deep one. My uh, okay. I'm gonna go with um. Man, I had so many. I had a few here because uh, I'll quickly mention. Don't go near the park, which is not a don't you know not a last house on the left. Don't you know? It's not one of those grim movies. It is a cannibal movie, but it is the wackiest movie you'll see. You know, that's all I'll say. Uh, it's kind of like Cannibal Apocalypse in that it's constantly switching gears, but you will never. You can write down 20 things that you think might happen in the movie based on the first half hour, and none of them will be correct. Um, I haven't seen this. I, I, I know the title. Don't the the park. Yeah, Linnea Quigley's in it for a minute huh. or two, but uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember who else. Okay. Um, I think Aldo Ray's in it or somebody. Uh, one of those old-timer guys shows up, but yeah. Um, so the for my one obscure pick, I think I'll go with, um, I've been talking about that on Twitter too, is uh, Eddie the Sleepwalking Cannibal. Which is oh uh, shit! My Dave did the acquisitions on this. Oh, um, okay. So yeah, Dave was working for a company called Level Thirty Three at the time, mm-hmm. and they um, it's an Irish film, and yeah. he picked it up, and they he did the the full acquisitions on this one. I remember seeing this ahead of time because it was marketed um, when it finally did its stateside release. It was marketed as this brutal cannibal film, mm-hmm. and it's not in any no. way. It's like no, a, it's it's like a almost like a Rain Man kind of thing. Yeah. So it's like Rain Man crossed with Bucket of Blood. So basically you have this artist who's got artist block. He's this famous guy. Like he's like this, you know, like uh, the, the, you know, the new great painter kind of guy. And then he just, he hit a block and he couldn't come up with anything. And he ends up at the school teaching art. Um, and uh, for plot reasons, he ends up being roommates with Eddie, who is a mute, um, uh, he's got, I'm not sure what the current PC is. I'm sorry. Mentally challenged kind of guy. I'm not sure if that's the right term now. Sorry. Um, who, uh, sleepwalks as the title would tell you, Eddie, the sleepwalking cannibal. Uh, and the artist guy realizes that, um, when Eddie goes out and sleepwalks and he, he, at first he kills like the neighbor's dog or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, like this is helpful. Thanks. Cause the dog was annoying. But oh, and quick correction, the, not like, Irish. This is no, from Denmark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's Denmark Canadian, but it's got yeah. a couple of people from Pontypool. Oh. I think it's got some of the, maybe a producer or two. Oh. It's got, got two of the actors from Pontypool. Um, uh, um, what was it? When he sees the carnage that Eddie's done uh, with this dog, uh, he gets inspired. And he starts painting again. And so he realizes that, like, by Eddie doing this stuff, uh, he can become famous again. So it's like this, like, kind of bucket of blood or a little shop of horrors thing where it's like, oh, you have to kill to, to be famous thing. But it's also kind of like Rayman because, like, him and Eddie start forming this, like, legit bond. But then he realizes that once Eddie is calm and comfortable in his situation, he no longer does those things. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of start being like a dick to Eddie to get him to start killing again. So it's just like, it's just like this weird, like it's got this very strong, almost Cohen-y kind of tone to it. Um, and it's, 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 it's really short. It's like 80 minutes long. If that, I mean, it's, it moves really well. Um, it's the cannibalism is very explicit when it happens. There's not a lot of it, but you'll see it. It's not, again, it's not like chainsaw. We are trying to like, Oh, did he eat him? Like, no, he definitely ate him. Mm-hmm. You'll see it. Um, 
It's just like this really cool movie. And like, yeah, yeah I started Scream Fest. It's probably my favorite movie from that year's Scream Fest or one of them. Um, and then like, it just, I don't know if people have found it since then. And I said, Dave worked on uh, getting a distribution. Um, yeah, but even still, the distribution I remember being real small here. Like, yeah, it, I mean, it's it on Tubi now. So if you mm-hmm. want to, if you got Tubi, it's like, leave us free anyway. Uh, yeah, you know, it's on there. It's um, a great film. A it's a really yeah. good movie. It's like I watched mm-hmm. it again. I'm like, this is even better than I remember. This is so good. Like, it moves well. It's funny. Like, you care mm-hmm. about these. You care about both characters. You kind of feel bad for the artist guy, even though he's like instigating murder uh, you definitely feel bad for eddie because he's just you know he's just one of those like he wants to be loved kind of guys mm-hmm. um uh Stevie mccaddy shows up and you know as as his law for a canadian horror movie <laughs> um as like this like slimy agent who really doesn't care like he's like murder sure whatever like give me that 10 percent um yeah it's it's a really good move i'm glad i i'm glad i because you guys said like oh and you need you know find an obscure one i'm like oh what's an obscure cannibal movie because again i'm not Super, super into Campbell movies, but I was We like, know you're diehard. I kinda looked I kinda looked at my old reviews. I'm like, oh fuck yeah, Eddie. Like I remember that movie being really good. Hopefully I can find it. And it was on Tubi. I'm like, oh good. Like easy enough to revisit. Yeah. And it's not one of those deals where I'm like, oh, I remember seeing this movie and that turns out to be crap. And so I rewatched. I'm like, nope, fucking holds up. Hell yeah. Well, that's why I knew we had to bring in the cannibal expert whose favorite genre yeah. was cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, like, I've seen more than I, like, if you were like, oh, what, you know, name some cannibal movies, I'd probably name just the 10 that we saw. But then I'm looking over and like, oh, there's a lot more. I just kind of forgot, like, Gravy mm-hmm. is another mm-hmm. fun one mm-hmm. uh, from James Rode, the guy that made the, the uh, Psych, you know, the mm-hmm. show Psych. Oh, so he's I- like this huge horror yeah. fan. And he got a bunch of his comedy friends to do this movie called Gravy, which is like, three cannibals come to a, uh, a Mexican restaurant after they've closed and they hold the staff hostage and they decide which one they're going to eat, but they're like foodies. Oh. So they don't want to just like kill indiscriminately. They want to like make sure they get the best. So they make them do like movie trivia and stuff to like, figure <laughs> out which, like, uh, the, the, like, you know, things go awry. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Simpson's one of the, uh, the cannibal guys. He's always good. I've um, never heard of this oh, one. It's, this it's sounds... a fun movie. Yeah. And it's got, um, the main girl in it is, um, Oh, I've name? seen the uh, cover the of this. The it's Concourse. Sarah Silverman. Uh, no, she's no. in it. She's in it too. Uh, the main girl. Uh, what's her name? God damn it! The girl. The she's obsessed the fan. Concords. The obsessed fan. What's it? She's on Gravity Falls too. She's yeah. now on. Um, yeah. Uh, oh gosh, no, you're talking about the girl who's their number one fan, right? Like Flight of the Concords yeah. number one fan. No, the the one that the the roommate that he wanted to like. Oh, okay. Uh, him, me, and oh, yeah, 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 yeah. With the food, that, that, oh. um, wow, my favorite song from Father Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there was a lot of, and then Lily Cole, no, that's not her either, not her song. either. All right, that's okay. I've got Gabrielle Sibido. Wow, everybody's no, in this her. thing. Um, it's but Sutton Saffron Foster, Sutton. Sutton Foster, thank you. Okay, yeah. live research. <laughs> um, and then yeah. Grim Love, which I believe was a Fangoria. Release. Oh yeah, the, um, about the German? which is based on the true story of the uh, the guy that like wanted to eat another dude's penis and found one online that was like, "Hey, I want somebody to eat my penis." So this works out. True story that Stuart Gordon uh, did a play version of turned into um, feast. Was it called? Uh, it was taste. It was, that was taste. Maybe it was taste. Taste. Yeah, I um, remember. 
they cooked on stage. I remember yeah. seeing it. I can't remember what it was called. I remember yeah. they prepared everything on stage and it smelled amazing. It was so good. But the, yeah. uh, he was trying to, he did a Kickstarter or something at one point to try to get a feature version of Rocks that didn't happen. But, yeah. uh, but Grim Love is based on that that same story. And the best adaptation wow. of that is an episode of the IT, IT Crowd from England, uh, <laughs> where one of the characters just wants to watch his blockbuster rental, but his player's down. Yeah. And so he a- answers an ad for a kindly German man wanting wanting to ha- wanting a mate, and he's going to get Eden to watch his film. It's amazing. Oh, it is. It is taste. Stuart Gordon, when he did the stage production, was called yeah, taste. taste. Yeah, um, right. yeah, and it's it's quite amazing. I remember that production just being gorgeous. Well, I will tell people to look out for a movie called uh, from Sundance. I think one of the best ones I've seen this year is called Fresh, and it's it's got an element of cannibals. That's all I'll say because it's not that kind of movie. It's it's one of more um, original approaches to the topic I've seen because it starts as a dating movie. It's a really really solid. Uh, has Sebastian Stan as the main guy, and it's a it's a really good upcoming horror film this year. So, look out for that. I think we've done justice to Cannibals, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So. And then just I want to do one more. Just I watched it for the first time uh, to pay my respects to Ivan Reitman. I had never seen Cannibal Girls. Okay. Oh, it's oh, fun. It's yeah. funny. And so I, mean, I watched like, that. And, it's uh, in no way serious, but it's funny. It's like, a strange. Yeah, it's it's yeah. got humor in it, but it's also like it still works as a horror movie. Like mm-hmm. you could almost miss the humor. It's so underplayed at times. I mean, it's Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin. So you're almost expecting it to be a little more wacky than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like all the dialogue was improvised. You can usually kind of tell, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like a 75 minute movie or whatever. And it's, 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 it was gorier than I was expecting. Yeah. It almost goes into like, HGL kind of territory. It feels, like, yeah, yeah, it does. And, and the, the main, the main villain is very much like it, not Blood Feast, but he reminded me of the dude from. Um, Wizard of Gore, like yeah, that sort of like oh, Magnifico. I was yeah, gonna yeah, say yeah. he's got like a coffin Joe vibe because it is like this oh, yeah. suit with the top hat. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah, Wizard of Gore. It's definitely got this like magnificent vibe to it of like I'm this wizard who's conjuring <laughs> yeah, all like, this. So, why yeah. is a wizard in this movie? All of a yeah, sudden, but no, yeah. he's a cannibal too. Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us again and um, kind of going. This is my first. I think this is my first appearance on Colors of the Dark. Yeah, this one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've got you on a seven-year rotation, baby. Don't worry. Yeah, Yeah. every seven. We're here like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre man. We'll get you back in 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 like five. We'll pick out your other least favorite subgenre, and we will pull you on as an expert. (laughs) That's how we roll. Oh my gosh, Brian, thank you so much. Um, listeners, thank you so much for staying with us tonight. Please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, and you also get these amazing cheat sheets, including this month where we are going 20 deep into some deep cut cannibal films that were not all mentioned on this show. So if you're not full yet, see what I did there again, guys. Um, there's plenty more to be had over on our Patreon show, Deep Cuts. Thank you guys so much. Have an awesome night. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 